0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW reward' prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. plus. Hey,
1: everybody. Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Boxing history again. So hold on to your butts, dude. I'm here with Eris Pina, CompuBox operator, and course my dude fellow fight history fanatic we just love this stuff that's what we're here for eris what's up man how are you
0: everything's good man my barber's on vacation hence why i gotta wear a hat this week but um
1: <laughs> my, mine that, too i i know the feeling
0: <laughs> other than that everything is good everything is everything is chilling man it's um it's been nice weather out here and fall's kind of been kicking in and everything like that and we're here to talk some history like you said so
1: hell yeah dude you know uh it's we're trying something a little bit different today because I mean, we're we have like part two and three and nine and all this type of stuff to catch up on on different topics. But in the meanwhile, like we'd like to keep it rolling, keep it moving. Um, Sometimes we do contemporary stuff, but we're sticking with the history today and we're doing some mythical matchups. So yeah. my idea was to do mythical matchups, but to keep it tight, to keep it snappy and to keep it moving. Your idea was to go. We we each took like a mythical matchup from each of the original eight weight divisions from flyweight to heavyweight and just thought of you know a fight that we would like to see and i don't know i mean i think that between us we could come up with some pretty fun ones i don't know that it's so much of a debate is just so much as we you know
0: you just talk discuss. about it why would it be a debate one is the fights that honestly you know they're un unmakeable because of the time periods or whatever so i mean it's like, it's just fun to talk about. It's fun to mix, to mix and match people throughout history. It's always been a fun subject. Totally. If you're a follower of Doug Fisher on his, um, uh, what you call it, his mailbag columns throughout the year is one of his favorite, one of, their, one of the favorite topics I always came up was fans and, you know, readers and stuff like that, sending in mythical matches for him to answer. So, yeah. I,
1: I actually remember that uh, from back in the day on Max Boxing. He's been um, doing
0: it for a long time. I don't dude, know if he even still has. I don't even know if he still has a um, a mailbag or anything like that. But I mean, like it goes back to like the early two thousands.
1: He used to do like uh, he used to talk about old school Southern California, like like from the sixties and seventies boxing, and at the time, it's stuff that I had never. I didn't know shit about it. Didn't never heard of it. And there's so many names that I was like, Ooh, but it caused me to look up uh, so many of these. And that was a, a lot of that stuff was the inspiration uh, behind getting into a lot more boxing history and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, totally. And a lot of people seem to like mythical matchups and it's always been, you must be out of your goddamn mind. Sugar Ray Robinson, the greatest fighter that ever lived. You know, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant among fight fans, you know?
0: Absolutely, man. And like I said, it goes in every sport. People like to debate who's was the greatest quarterback ever or whatever it may be. And was Michael Jordan the GOAT or is it LeBron James now or whatever goes on. So when it comes to boxing, when you can have so many legends in each division, especially in the original eight weight classes, which we're going to like focus on today. Um, I mean, a lot of those classes like heavyweight, light heavyweight, middleweight, they, they go all the way back, especially heavyweight and middleweight. And like the, the various fighters that came through there, it's, it's fascinating when you think about mixing and matching the start of them. There's video games that have, you know, been able to, like, make us realize our dreams over the years, to a degree. We're still waiting on a new one for over a decade now. ESBC, I'm looking at you. And, um... <laughs> gotta be Give
1: us games. Give us...
0: I mean, don't get me wrong, man. Not to be off track really quick, but, like, Fight Night is still fun. For a game that came out in, what was that, like, 2011 or so, I think it was? It's still a good game if you're able to get, like, you know, if you play it, it's still the mechanics of it and everything like that. It's better than anything UFC has put out, and EA has put out with UFC over the years, in my opinion. So it's still a fun game. But, yeah, man, it's just been way overdue. But because everybody has an ego in boxing and no one wants to sign over licenses and yada, 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 and all this other stupid shit, well, no one can do anything. Anyways... But that was like the closest thing because you can like the, the fighters that are already in the game, plus people that are creating guys, some some of them were really talented too, and making them almost identical. And then you are yeah. able to mix and match. So that's the closest we can kind of do it. And even back in the day too, when you had like board games and other stuff that you and I Yeah,
1: I was gonna say there's like dice games back in the day that you
0: could things, do man LA, like me, you, Gray, and Corey Erdman, um Gray Johnson, and Corey Erdman love to talk about and you know. Uh, shoot the shit about like all these things there's always been stuff that you can kind of mix and match so boxing fans have always been of the idea of mixing of um, fantasy fights even i think the most famous one you can for an example would be muhammad ali and rocky marciano when they did that computerized fight in the late 60s which you know still to this day is fascinating odd and various <laughs> other things <laughs> you
1: know? yeah Marciano's is on there with a with an well, awful rug pay? yeah <laughs> he's lost a little bit of weight but still looks pudgy definitely yeah. looks older you know like well, he
0: was obviously pudgy himself because he was in <laughs> exile at that point and on the college circuit there, there's really...
1: actually there's a whole bunch of clips on youtube like there's a they shot different endings and shit like that is pretty yeah, funny yeah, dude totally. it's pretty funny um but yeah and so
0: cities where marciano was popular he won the other cities where out popular <laughs> yeah. he would win and that's how they did it in the theaters. <laughs>
1: Which is, yeah, I mean, even just the idea of that's pretty amazing. I was 1969, I believe. And it was when uh, Ali was in exile. So, I mean, that was even before he'd accomplished a whole number of things. So, I mean, that's, it's amazing that he was already thought of as uh, truly great before then. But that's the whole point is that, you know, being able to use our imaginations for this stuff, it's, it takes some extrapolation. It takes some, you know, some imagination and it's not it's obviously what we're talking about it's not definitive it's just for fun but you know if you have other ideas if you're watching or if you're listening just shoot them back to us you know what i mean argue argue your viewpoint i'm i'm down for it like i'm i'm not gonna say that i'm gonna like argue you back i'm just saying you know i'm always down to hear other points of view but um let's start with the big boys let's start with the big guys yeah at heavyweight what what would you think is a really good mythical matchup what's your One of them I was
0: thinking about earlier today, and I was going back and forth, (laughs) and you know a lot of guys and a lot of people be like, oh, Ali, Joe Lewis, or this one and that, for example, like Foreman, Lennox Lewis, or something. But one that came off of me that I was thinking about today, and I was like, wow, that would be a fascinating fight. And at their peaks, I honestly, I'm not even sure. And that would be Larry Holmes against Sonny Liston, the battle of the greatest jabs in history. You would say, aside from Lewis, maybe.
1: Man. Because it's like you have, like you you posted uh, earlier today, talking about the anniversary of Larry Holmes, Larry Holmes eating Larry
0: that
1: a just ghastly right hand from Ernie Shavers. That some, some person had the audacity of saying that it was just some normal punch or something like that. There's a few chill. Chuckle
0: fucks. I'm going to say it right now, there's a few chuckle fucks on Twitter today that I would just be like, those don't the hardest punch ever, bro. Chill or or maybe i mean look it's ranked up there i don't know i'm just in generality most people say that so I, i'm not even arguing that it's the fact that when people say that's clearly not the hardest punch holmes ever took holmes has said on more than one occasion every single time he's ever been interviewed and he's not said it because it's like the popular thing to say like floyd mayweather talking about emmanuel augustus like this is legit holmes and every other heavyweight from that gen from that era as always, everybody, all of them have said the same thing. When Ernie Shavers hits you, they never felt anything like that, all right? The only reason why Holmes got up is because he hit the canvas so goddamn hard and that it woke him back up, and he was jolted away. Holmes has said on many occasions if Shavers just didn't, didn't hit him as hard, which is impossible, but, like, somehow just, you know, didn't have the full force that he did, because that, that, that was the hardest punch Shavers ever thrown. He, he said it all the time. If he had hit him, though, like the way he hit, I don't know, maybe Bernardo Macaro or somebody else, Holmes might have been down for the count. But instead, Holmes just – you jot up and you saw him, man, completely blind-eyed, wonky. He had no idea what happened to him. It was – look, there was the equivalent, I would say, uh, had, <clears throat> in my opinion, it was the equivalent of like a Looney Tunes cartoon when you take an anvil and it just drops down and kills <laughs> Wiley Coyote. You know what I mean? Like –
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was brutal, dude. It was a, just an absolutely gnarly shot. And it's the kind of thing that for me, you know, when, when people argue stuff back like, uh, I mean, just even small stuff like, oh, that cut's not that bad or, you know, something, something's not that bad. Think about when so-and-so fought on with a broken jaw or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, bro, what you're talking about is the outliers. You're talking about extreme cases, and that's why you're bringing it up. That's why you remember it. Fucking 12 years later it's because that shit was so crazy and so you can't compare just everyday shit to something that is the extreme outlier all the way to the top like anyway so same type of shit you know like where we remember it like this because that shit was a gnarly punch and if larry holmes himself is talking about that's the fucking hardest he's ever been hit i believe him and i'm not gonna argue with him but i i would say that generally speaking he's probably i mean uh, a little bit more hittable overall than Ali at his best. But, like, that's the thing is that, like, he has the recuperative power, so it's tough to say. But Sonny, dude, Sonny could really fucking hit. He could really hit himself, and even just his jab, if they're going jab for jab, yeah. Larry had a great jab, but Sonny's jab was, like, a power punch in itself.
0: Yeah. Angelo Dundee would always say, and others from that whole era that witnessed Liston live or just watched or you watched it on television, whatever it was, you could just tell it that Liston had that type of jab that had not been seen since the days of Joe Lewis, where it wasn't just a jab where the controlled the action, like it busted you up. It broke your nose. It broke your face. It can knock you out and knock your teeth out. Like Liston, everything hurt with him. And the minute you got in the ring with Liston, he was such an intimidating force to begin with. He wasn't the tallest guy but he had those long arms. He was just built like an ox. And the most intimidating, scare, scariest resting bitch face you'd ever seen in your life where, he, you know... he The most ever, massive
1: hands I've ever seen, dude. And,
0: and just his reputation in general because it was, you know, from his past and everything like that and the way um, conservative America in the 50s and 60s looked at him, you know, just completely with back-away arms. And this, we're talking about the era when Mobsters ran boxing, and it was already like really shady and things going on. They looked at people like that, and they looked at list, and they were just like, "Oh God!" Like you know, he was—he had this dark cloud over, like really bad one. And that's unfortunate. I mean, we've talked about him before in his whole past, everything like that. But like, you know, so a lot of fighters when they got in the ring with him, whether they wanted to or not, when they did, and they see what was going on, they're just like, "Oh, you know." And they finally look across the ring, and. Dudes were just reduced to absolute rubble. And we're talking about some of the best in the era, the guys that Floyd Patterson was forced to avoid because of Custom auto. You know, Zora Foley, Cleveland Williams, Eddie Machen. Um, the list goes on and on. Liston wiped them all out. Machen was the only one to go to distance with Liston out of that type of era when you know, Liston was just bombarding these dudes like they were pinballs left and right. You know, Foley got blasted in three rounds. Cleveland Williams wasn't able to last three rounds in the two fights he went with Liston. He did good. You know, he bloody Liston's nose. Probably would have knocked out most other heavyweights with the barrage he hit. But Liston was not only did he hit so hard, he was a stone cold rock too. So he just boom, 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 boom. and Williams was displayed out the way Ali did it to him years later. So you know, man you put them at their peaks, dude, and you just kind of like, holy crap, you know, you got stoned and five.
1: I think that I'd probably go with Larry just because I think that on? he's he's the greater fighter And he'd probably find a way to win. You know, like, just and, you know, he's probably seen or gone through better adversity than Sonny Liston, but I mean, Sonny's got that kind of power, that it's like, you can never count a fighter like that out, but generally speaking, I'm going to go with Larry Holmes.
0: I think Holmes would have to go through a lot of hell at first, but like you said, Pat, there was more layers to Holmes game, I would say, too. Like, you know, Holmes over the years has been more so compared to Ali as, like, you know, the dancing ma- – well, not so much a dancing master, but, yeah, like, being on flight of foot, always flicking the jab and moving stuff like that, or Holmes has always been known to be relying on the one-two, which he was. You know, a lot of his highlights, you see him doing that. Boom, 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 boom. boom. But if you do watch Larry Holmes, and Carlos Azevedo from Hamilcar Boxing has mentioned that in the series that he wrote about Holmes' um, teledefenses – you would notice that in each defense, too, Holmes would adapt to what was in front of him. Like, there was, you know, he wasn't just relying on the one, two. Like, with each round and things presented to him, he would, you know, um, work on those openings. Like, he did have a great uppercut and necessary. He could have a good inside. Yeah, game. I
1: was going to say he had a really good uppercut.
0: Really good uppercut. Like, he did have a good inside game when necessary. He could go to the body if he had to. Um, you know, the combinations weren't just all that. Like, he could be very fluid in, in his punch output. And like you said, man, his recuperative powers were second to none. <clears throat> I mean, the only one you could see, like, he was on par with Ali, who was unfathomable with the way he could recover himself. But, like, when we talked about the way Holmes got dropped today against Shavers, also um, a couple of years later, he gets dropped by against Renato Snipes. Not quite as hard as what Shavers did to him because that was just, you know, ungodly. But hard enough that the average heavyweight would have been completely, you know, um, short-circuited from that and Holmes gets up Holmes stumbles it headfirst into the corner post which would have been a sure f- sire fine in 2022 to for a fight to be stopped immediately
1: yeah for sure
0: and, uh, you see his eyes again he has the same like blank stare in his face kind of that he did with shavers not so much as much but just still clearly he's like a little bit stargazed and Snipes gets in gets very excited Snipes's corner is getting really excited the whole you know arena is getting excited and as everybody did when they hurt Larry Holmes, they got a little bit overzealous, And, you know, he's just wailing, wailing away. And Holmes, with the recuperative powers that he did, within a few seconds or 20, 30 seconds or so, had already got himself back. And then you see him boom, boom, and coming right back just viciously. And that was the thing about Holmes, man. If you hurt him, and once he got his, game, his mojo back, bro, you got to get prepared because he was going to get yeah. back quick. Like, he wasn't going to let you, you yep. know, take that.
1: Yeah, some well, you could you could say it however you want. These days the youngsters say got that dog in him. Yeah. That's exactly what he had. You know, you hit him, he he wasn't cool with that. He it wasn't just he needed to get the last word and he'd get nasty, he'd start talking to you, he'd start tormenting your ass, you know. So that's yeah, I'd probably go with Larry, dude. He's he just had that he had that it factor more than more than Sunny did you Remember that
0: nasty fact, uh, the, the thing you just mentioned? Remember, um, the Michael Greer video you posted up years ago? So, Larry yeah. Holmes, it was like 1991 or so. So, obviously, Holmes, who talked all the way back in the early 80s about retiring in 81 and 82, this is gonna be my last year in boxing, yada yada yada. Still, Holmes is here in the early 90s and it'll still be a full decade before he actually retired, anyways. He was fighting a middling heavyweight by the name of uh Michael Greer. It was a, you know, more or less a journeyman or so from the cruiserweight era and the heavyweight era at that time. So yeah, what, what happened, Pat, right? Greer gets him on the ropes and hit him with a couple of shots that Larry felt disrespected by.
1: Yeah, dude, he, it, was, it was a literal it – was, it was almost as if this is the exact sequence they got that you trying to embarrass me on national TV oh, yeah, fucking, yeah, yeah. you know, from Great White Hype. It was almost like an exact boxing – well, that's probably what they got it from. Because Larry was just like, really? Really? He was hitting
0: him on the back of the head, wasn't he? Or something like that? Or well, like- yeah. Like, he yeah. he
1: clipped him, and then they came inside, and then he started, you know, like like he was, like, starting to feel himself. Like, he was like, oh, I'm roughing you up. And started, like, kind of yeah. rabbit punching him and kind of roughing him up a little bit. And Larry was just like, okay. <laughs>
0: Holmes walked in and went hands down and just pummeled him.
1: Into yeah. And box. he just walked, he just walked him down and was just like, no, 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 not today, buddy. And just absolutely fucking slept him, like just hammered him. <laughs> oh my God. Poor guy. It's got to be on YouTube. It is
0: on YouTube. I sent it to you. That's yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, about. that's how we found it. It's, I'm sure it's still up, but it's just like, my God, dude. Poor over guy. Over and
0: over, too. Like Larry was relishing this. How motherfucking
1: Yeah, like dude. Like he was just punishing child, him. You
0: know what I mean? <laughs>
1: You. Like he stole something
0: oh yeah <laughs> the, like
1: the audacity he wasn't having it
0: Like hey, yeah. man we won't disrespect the legend but i gotta go with that that was my that was my entry for the heavyweight division
1: that's a pretty good one that's a very good one i think mine is probably going to be something a little bit more for the purists the hashtag purists but uh i thought it was fun especially because of the height difference and 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 i think that it's far more legit because i was just like all right Who's the, in my opinion, greatest, like big heavyweight? And then who's like the actual greatest, small heavyweight, like and like actual greatest, you know? And I use that word, I emphasize actual greatest. Uh so I thought Lennox Lewis is gonna be my greatest big heavyweight. No disrespect to either of the Klitschko brothers. But
0: hey, you have the right choice.
1: And my greatest small heavyweight going to have to be Sam Langford. I know there's going to be some people Ooh. that are like, wait a second, Jack Dempsey's the giant killer. Hold on, Rocky Marciano's the blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to say no, I'm sorry. Sam Langford beat better fighters, and he was just the greater fighter overall. And, and Dempsey
0: would have told you that too.
1: Yeah, Well, and Dempsey himself said in his own book, and some people will write it off as he's like, oh, he's just being gracious. But Dempsey was like, I was scared of that guy. I didn't want to fight him. Fuck that. He said it. I don't know. Maybe he shouldn't have said it if he didn't mean it, but uh, he had a reason to say it because Sam Lankford was a scary, scary fighter who came all the way up from lightweight, dude. He fought all the way down at like, I mean, even a little below lightweight went all the way up to heavyweight and as a heavyweight obviously was not like he was not a ripped fellow, but that's what makes it even crazier is he was just laying fools out at like five foot eight. And just like fucking pummeling him, dude. And so, I mean, yeah, it's, I think that logically you think about it and go, oh, well, I think Lennox Lewis has got this in the bag. He probably does, dude. You know what? He probably does. Great big fighter against a great small fighter. I, I can dig that argument. But you also, I think that put him in with somebody like Sam Langford, who just was better on the inside. And there's video. Like this is not just some like Harry Greb situation where you're imagining. Well, he must have been like, dude. There's video. You can watch him.
0: This do- good video. This yeah, video.
1: he's mobile. He knows what the fuck he's doing inside. He's you know uh, punching in combination. He's clearly a big puncher. And he was laying dudes out at that time too. When like newspaper decisions were like flying left and right. So I think that it's safe to say that he would at the very least be able to hold hold his own in there. Like. And I'm not talking about resumes. I'm talking about like, you know, putting them in there together.
0: Oh, absolutely, man. We've, we have discussed it on a couple uh, more recent show when we were talking about Langford fighting um, fireman Jim Flynn, that stupid lunghead, and just sleeping him. And it's like Langford's style, especially for that time period, we're talking the whole 19, early 1900s. And back then, because that's like the most prevalent footage that we have of like the turn of the century when it comes to like famous fighters and all that a lot of those styles don't really hold up when you look at it like you know people you look you read newspaper accounts of the fights of stanley ketchel against billy Papke and other fights of that era and how savage they are and yada 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 and then you watch the clips of them on youtube or you know surviving footage and yeah i get it like a lot of them are not in real time they're kind of sped up and other things are going on like that but you get the general gist of what's going on and when you see all the clinching and the mauling and everything happening and you're just like oh you yeah, know this is like oh, this would be yeah, like dude we've talked
1: about it before some of it's just borderline unwatchable like it's just like oh
0: really yeah and, you know like really the minute they get in there's no like jabbing or anything they literally just go in like a couple of million really just clinching it, and they just start milling away like a
1: so, really big part of their game was like they'd be like this and they'd be going like locked up inside, moving their heads because they're sitting there trying to just like, a, Jimmy are yeah. fucking like it's like, what the fuck is this? You know, it was awful.
0: <laughs> it's pretty awful, exactly. But Langford's style is different, man. Like Langford could box. You know, sure he it's it's still a blend of like the old time and you know contemporary style, but his style holds up and you can see the brilliance that all the people talked about back then. And what makes it even more fascinating is that he is totally smaller than everybody else too. When you see the giants of his era, you see the Joe Jeanette, you see the Jack Johnson, you see the other guys who are a lot, lot bigger than he is, and I agree with you, Pat. Like he did have to reach the limit. There were guys out there that were just completely too big for him that he wasn't able to beat. Um, Fred Fulton, for example, who was a giant for the era, skill for skill, Langford dwarfs him in that in, in that department because Fulton wasn't anything that you know write home about. But Fulton was an absolute you know, giant of a human. Really dude I know that just annihilated him in a few seconds was um, Jack Dempsey. And even there, so there was some controversy surrounding that in terms of gloves and yada, yada, yada. But Fulton was able to beat um, Sam Langford. Ha- um, <clears throat> Harry Wills, for example, another contemporary black fighter that was ducked by Dempsey and, um, you know, known as one of the greats of that time. Uh, he also had, I want to say, yeah, Langford's number, they split a pair. They split a bunch of fights, but Wills got the general better of it. So- if you consider that and then if you want to think of Lennox and the way he was as the modern big man and just like you said, I consider him the greatest big man as well ever. Like you just, the way Emmanuel Stewart was, I mean, Lennox was before he lost to Arnold McCall was still a very good fighter. You know what I mean? He threw in combination. He was well and everything, but after he lost that fight and when Emmanuel Stewart, Stewart took over and just like kind of, you know, retooled his style a little bit and made him more relaxed in the way he just had everything going for him, and just made him, you know, use his size. Everything worked for Lennox; Like, he was almost unbeatable for a while. Yeah, he slipped up. He could be touched. I mean, we saw what happened with Rachman, and he was definitely slowing down by the end, but at his peak, dude, he would be a tough night for anyone in history. So, yeah, I would choose him over Langford, but to say that Langford wouldn't have an out-and-out chance, no, there's no way I it. Like, like you said, dude, Langford knew how to fight big guys. He had fought big guy, guys bigger than him his entire career, like his contemporary um, Barbados Joe Walcott. And they usually thrived on bigger guys because they were faster than them and they knew how to just get in them and just whoop some ass on them. You know what I mean? These little, like, these big dudes would go in there and try swatting down at a fly, and flying. these guys would come in pop, 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 and just take the ass out. So to say that Langford would look at a guy like Lennox Lewis and think he couldn't tear him up would be like, You know, very wrong. Like he definitely would have the confidence to do that. So, good call.
1: At the well, it's all about having fun. You know, it's all about the discussion. So, some people might hear that and be like, "Come on, this is some bullshit." I don't know, man. I don't know. Just saying.
0: Hey, man, I got iced by smaller guys in fight night. All right, while I was Lennox. So,
1: (laughs) every so often, I you know, I come on. I'm. We all know we're going to be iced by smaller actual fighters. So, if you have
0: a head to head between Sam Langford and Oliver McCall. Or Sam Langford and Hasim Rockman. I'm going with Langford.
1: <laughs> That's for sure, dude. Yeah, That's so. for sure. Yeah. Who do you got at light heavyweight?
0: Light heavyweight. That was another one I was thinking of earlier. And, you know, a couple of episodes back, we were talking about um, the Superman of my childhood, Roy Jones. So I'm going to put Roy in there because he was always a part of a lot of mythical matchups, especially in the early 2000s where people were, th- were talking about him being the GOAT. So... How about him against the person that most people consider the goat of light heavyweights, Ezra Charles?
1: All right, yeah, damn, that's a good one, actually.
0: It's a really good, yeah, it's a...
1: a lot of people, I mean, I guess I kind of agree, but it's I, I don't know the reason why. A lot what, of people say
0: the greatest light heavyweight or
1: Well, no, a lot of people say that no I, I know why oh. a lot of people say why Ezard's the greatest he probably is the greatest light heavyweight. Uh, that run that he went on light heavyweight even without uh, winning the titles like it's like just all-time great after all-time great after all even at middleweight charlie burley he was like what like 18 or 19 and he beat charlie burley
0: he's still in high school he was beaten up as yeah he had it was it
1: was i think either the first of i want to say two fights and it was the next day he was graduating high school
0: yeah
1: (laughs) anyway i mean that's that's nuts but um you know, the day after I graduated high school, I probably just went fucking smoke weed. But in any case,
0: I certainly was not going in the ring with Charlie Burley. No, a tr- while I was in high school, not at all. I was still in my jazz band. Um, I was training at the gym, but probably getting my ass kicked in sparring. I definitely was not getting ready to fight the baddest light heavyweight. No, team. I was yeah, just the the world
1: insane. <laughs> But, yeah, and, yeah, Charles yeah, so goes I,
0: in there, beats a guy up, and then goes to math class the next day for a test. Sure. Yeah,
1: so I definitely understand why people would say he's the greatest, but I think that a lot of people believe a lot of like history types who talk about Roy Jones, you know, now believe that he ducked most punchers uh, in the divisions that he was in, going up to light heavyweight. And I mean, he didn't fight them. I don't know that he ducked them, but he didn't fight them. Even Darius Mikulchevsky was a puncher. And I mean, he wasn't the greatest fighter, obviously, and I would have picked Roy over him for sure, as most people would have, but it's like you can't give him, I've talked about this recently, you can't give him the credit for a fight he didn't fight. So I mean, I do, so I have questions, you know what I mean? Like even Roy at his peak, it's kind of like, what happens if somebody like really catches him? And we got questions, like, I think rightfully so. And especially with somebody like Ezra Charles, dude, uh, a lot of it gets kind of lost in his heavyweight title bill, uh, bid because he was a good heavyweight champion, but not a great heavyweight champion. Because by that time, he was already like his his greatest days were at light heavyweight, and he was not a big heavyweight whatsoever. So I think that this is, that's why this is a really good matchup because at light heavyweight, that's where Ezra Charles is at his best, and he could really punch at light heavyweight.
0: Dude, he was vicious, man. Like the photos of him just annihilating more, and the well, the book. I mean, um, Springs Toledo, his book on um, Black Murderers Row. He's mentioned Charles is mentioned completely throughout the book, and one of the few guys that was able to have his number is my f- personal favorite from that group. Uh, Hol- uh not alone, excuse me. Um, Lloyd Marshall. You know, Marshall was able to beat him up in his first fight, and then Charles came back and just you know thrashed him in the rematch, but. The reason why I love Marshall, you've talked about it, he was just, he seemed the happiest dude out of the group. The way he fought in the ring, he bounced off the ropes, sometimes so theatrically that the referee would issue a count before he realized that Marshall was bouncing off to go attack again and shit like that. Like, he was, he was so cool. And, um, dude, Charles, the thing about it is that, like, the reason why I'm going to lean to Ezra Charles in this fight is that Roy Jones is such an anomaly and his reflexes were so great and so good and all that, but there was still you know there's layers to his game that we realized that he just didn't have as he got older that someone like bernard hawkins and others were able to pick up because Roy <laughs> relied so much on his defense excuse me and just being so quick um you know quick twitched and fast that he didn't have to rely out just like you know working and doing things that just was just basic that you just learned in the gym and of course he knew how to do that but like he didn't do it for so many years and the style was so predicated on just being so quick and just boom, 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 and taking guys out and all that, that by the time he gets older, you know, it's none of that's even there and he's still trying to be the Roy Jones of, of young. And if you watch the fights, even in his prime, there was ways to exploit his, um, his style. Like, you know, he had to have the certain right guy to do it. Most guys couldn't do it. And even if they were able to do it briefly, they ended up losing, but for brief moments, you saw there was you know people able to exploit him. Guys like um, Montel Griffin, who we talked about, gave him absolute fits in their first fight. And who was his trainer in that fight? Eddie Futch, right? Eddie Futch, yeah. Where is Eddie Futch from? Eddie Futch is from the Ezra Charles era. You know? Yeah,
1: and even even Eric Harding gave him some trouble, I too. I was going he... to
0: say, yeah, Eric Harding. For yeah, like and... the first four or five rounds before his shoulder gave out was giving Roy the business.
1: Well, and, and that's the kind of fighter that, uh, that Roy did seem to have issues with or seem to have more issues with is like the fellow counter punchers who could, you know, had pretty good speed or pretty good timing. And that's, you know, stylistically, there's no actual formula. I know that a lot of people talk about that. Well, like, you know, uh, timing beats speed, but like power beats, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's no actual yeah, formula nah, that works. This is
0: okay. Like, and
1: it does, there are, you know... There are openings for it, but generally speaking, you know, when a fighter is relying on the on the reflexes and stuff like that, and that explosive speed and power, right. they, a lot of a lot of the time, timing can beat that kind of stuff. And if they're a really well schooled fighter, like a Montel Griffin, you know, unfortunately, he just couldn't punch. You know, if he could punch more, he might have been in trouble. Um, you know, if Eric Harding's bicep or whatever it was had held up. Boy, I don't know if he'd been in trouble but you know he was definitely not having his way in that fight he was having more trouble than usual and so yeah I mean I think if you put somebody like Ezra Charles in there where there is that extra element of he could also hurt you mm, yeah I'd probably lean lean Ezra Charles dude
0: totally I think it would be fat I think though you know what it would just be fascinating because Roy definitely would have success I mean even back then, Roy probably would have been faster than anyone of that time period, faster than Burley, who was extremely quick, faster than Lloyd Marshall, faster than, you know, any of the light heavyweights, black or white um, fighters that you can imagine. Like he just, we've never seen anybody like Roy Jones since he was in his prime or even really before that. We've had a cl- guys very close to him, you know, in style and stuff like that. But just in terms of his overall, like Roy has always been just kind of one of his own and that's what makes him so unique and special especially for fans like us who kind of grew up with him. But if we're not just, be, you know, awed by <laughs> the whole style that he had, like a lot of fans were back then, and you realize, hey, man, there are holes to his game that can be exploited and eventually were, you realize that guys from the past who just kind of had an overall of everything, like Ezra Charles, would just, you know, probably would come out on top, but it would have some difficulty in doing so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he just wouldn't have been as in awe of it or as impressed by it Absolutely as, Absolutely
0: know. not, man. I mean, he just would have had to digest it a few rounds, taking in what he had to do, and then once he started turning up the heat, as we know, Roy always struggled on the ropes. Charles would have ate him up over there. He started would have jabbed him with him. Roy had trouble with guys who would jab with him, and... Yeah, you just to-
1: need to download the data.
0: That's it, yeah, Lomachenko style. Jesus
1: Christ. <laughs> he just needed Matrix his way through that fight, you know?
0: Dude, yeah. you know, it's... <laughs>
1: I, I won't get you going I
0: won't get you going You know how I feel about that Pat <laughs> Can't stand downloading data And the fans that come along with it and playing all the <laughs> You know just for that When we get to featherweight I'm going to have Lomachenko fight Sandy Sadler oh, so we fuck. I'm just kidding go off
1: <laughs> Oh fuck yeah Sandy's going to line him up With a jab and bow.
0: You know what Saddler would have done to that poor guy Oh my god if you think Salito was bad to him Fans imagine what yeah, a dude well- like Sandy
1: <laughs> when they had that little, uh not to take it out into left field, dude. But the other day during the Shakur Stevenson fight, they had this little montage where they're talking about the light heavy or the lightweight division, and they're like, they call, they call, they refer to Lomachenko as the Grand Master, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> did they really? But there's a fucking champion. I, you know. Did maybe they mean the Grand Dragon? Or? Maybe they were referring to Bobby <laughs> Eric I don't know. I don't, don't, the know, check like the I don't know, man.
0: Whatever, but let's, yeah. uh,
1: instead I didn't of, get
0: let's it. of dwelling on that twerp, let's talk about what's yeah. going on. Uh, so, like,
1: light, so light heavyweights. I had, uh, I had a, a matchup that I thought was pretty fun. At the very least, we know for sure that it, one of the two fighters, if not both of them, would have made it fun because they both had a propensity for getting hit and for hitting super fucking hard. And that was Matthew Saad Muhammad and Archie Moore.
0: Yes. Oh, man, that fight would have been awesome.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it would have been like bombs away one way or another because Saad would not have let that shit go quietly. And Archie Moore, you know, he could be touched. He could be floored. He could get pissed off and then come back with his hair all fucked up and, like, trying to fucking beat you up. Yeah, so, I mean, it would have been fun.
0: Well, think about it, man. Moore, dude, they're has there been a lot of books written on more with all the things written about ali over the years and all the documentaries dedicated to him and a few other fighters you know like tyson which you know my god that hulu shit and like you know i'm not watching it
1: but i saw some screen caps and nah
0: (laughs) but you get what i'm saying is all the screen time dedicated to all these different guys there really needs to be something put on archie Moore, man whether it's a documentary or something because my god what a fascinating life that man had. Like are you kidding me?
1: And fought for forever and like just, you know, lived through so fucking much. Like
0: wow, was a like an incredible life, man. Like the guy turned pro in the mid in the uh in the mid 30s. Um his career ended in what? Like 1963. And his first pro fight is against a guy named Piano Man Jones, his last pro fight is <laughs> uh <clears throat> Professional wrestler named Mike DiBiase, and <laughs> that name doesn't—if that name doesn't ring a bell—his son is the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. And then think about everything that happened in between that. Like you said, he was a part of Black Murderer's Row somehow, and if he gets a light heavyweight title shot at a time when most people's careers would have ended years ago, and not only does he win that, he ends up having one of the most pro- prolific reigns in light heavyweight history to where today. We're talking 70 something years after his reign, he's still recognized today as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, lay heavyweight in history. Just a fest. And then you just, then you go about all, you know, you look into like the, his record for all the knockouts that he scored and his overall, you know, body of work and then his philosophies on life, his training habits, all this other stuff. The fact that he was training George Foreman and George Foreman became like a kind of a version of him coming back and being the old dude, like, shit's crazy man Archie Moore is the most fascinating guy ever sorry
1: (laughs) he really was dude and he uh he was a really great fighter too that I I know that he scored a shitload of knockouts we talked about shit like this before where we know a lot of his knockouts were over straight up scrubs or were fights where like dude who knows if it was fixed who knows what was going on who knows if this person was even an actual fighter but like I've always said before too even if you knock out a hundred scrubs, dude, that shit still takes skill. That's still a hundred fucking scrubs. Like, and I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding too, because we have, we have video, we can see, we can watch him fight. And he was a truly great fighter who, even though he scored the knockouts though, his skill probably gets underrated because he was a really, really smooth stylist. And he was the oh, yeah. kind of guy who, uh, you know, set up those punches. He was, he he was a good combination puncher too. So, you know there's a lot about him that's uh, there's a lot to like you know from a personal standpoint and as a fighter too really really good fighter but uh he had weaknesses you know he was not uh he was not super difficult to find and because he was a puncher you know he had to get in there and land his own punches he could be hit
0: and his chin wasn't the greatest either he could be decked he could be out like and he clearly like i said like as smart as he was and you know he was past his probably like he was still an old man and the light heavyweight division that he was in at that point like there was some names that he had fought like harold johnson and a few others but like he just you know if you found a prime guy that was able to like, really drill him like he could he could be dropped and hurt like yvonne Durrell, which one of the greatest fights of, an, of all time how old was more in that fight
1: was, oh, man, I want to say he was like 39 or something. Like, I mean, I think he was
0: even older. I think he was in his 40s, by He
1: way. might have been like, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Or, and like, I think he was
0: right, – Graying at the sides and everything gets dropped a number of times early. He has to rally back and stop a guy like Darrell. But in all essence, Darrell was just a crude slugger. There was nothing really like finessed and like really exciting about him. And he was able to get to more and touch him up and drop him a number of times. So it's not inconceivable to think a guy like Saad Muhammad wouldn't be able to do the same. But the thing about Moore, like you said, man, not only was he really crafty, he had good recuperative powers too. He could still last. He was he knew what he was doing in the ring. And there wasn't anything he had never seen before. And he used that his oldness to his advantage. Like that whole hypnotist shit that he would do, because he would always be talking to his opponents, you know? And more than one guy that was interviewed after fighting Archie Moore over the years would always say the same thing. They saw him, they would look across the ring. He looked old, he'd hunch over you know, probably on purpose to make himself look even more pronounced, right? He was graying at the sides. He was always in shape, so you can't say he was flabby or anything, but like he had surgery on his stomach for a couple of operations that he had. So he had like some jagged scars that were very visible over there too to add to his whole thing. And you're looking at him, he's like, man, this guy's an old heap. Like the fuck, are you kidding me? I'm going to stomp this guy to death. I'm surprised none of these other guys could have done it. You know, this is going to be easy work. And so you go out there in the first round and they said, you know, Moore would go there and like he would just be really relaxed. And he had a cross-arm defense, the same um, one that Foreman perfected years later. And that's what made him touchable too, because even though that defense does work in terms of taking punishment, like you can be touched up with it. And so these guys are working. Moore's and, in. The
1: and they were sorry, but they were always doing the same. That they were always moving forward and down yes. too. Like there weren't like there wasn't a whole lot of like side to side shit. It was like, yeah, like, dude, yeah. you. <laughs>
0: it like was a variation he wasn't completely cross on he did like a weird crap thing and he did have like more side to side movement with his butt more informant especially more like because that was his thing was the and as he's doing it he'd be talking oh yeah kid you're doing great oh yeah nice shot man keep on going wow you're gonna be the next champ in the world and then all of a sudden because he gets you in a lull and you're feeling good then he'd be like stop and you stop and he would take your ass out but we're talking now, if you want to put the more that's like around I want to say the Maxim fight against the San Muhammad. at what would you say his peak was at? Probably around the first Marvin Johnson fight, maybe because
1: Yeah, 'cause yeah. Cause even though like the like Yaki Lopez, that was like great fights, but he was already starting to kind of slide a little bit, yeah. you know. He'd already been touched up by then.
0: Yeah. I think Honestly, I think more comes back to rally. Mora gets dropped early, gets rocked a lot. It's a back and forth battle. And more stops him super late. So I can't see that fight going the distance.
1: Nah, I don't Everyone, either. Like round
0: thirty and 14, an absolute war. more takes Yeah, time.
1: it's probably something. It's probably a fucking bloodbath with yes. Saad Muhammad getting cut once or twice. But Moore's refusing to quit. Himself. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a bloodbath. And I'd probably go with Archie, too. But, I mean, I wouldn't be confident about it.
0: No, nah, that that's a good call. That would have been an awesome fight.
1: Who do you got for middleweight?
0: Middleweight? Man. Um, you know, just a couple of bulls, man. A couple of guys that just won from the turn of the century. And then one that was raging. So, I'm talking Jake LaMotta against Stanley Ketchell. Okay. All right. <laughs>
1: That's an interesting fight, dude. Because I mean, I it's like you know, I, Jake Lamata obviously soaks up a lot of punishment, or that was kind of his his mo was his ability. He was not of... no
0: slugger either. Yeah, he was more of a crouching boxer counter like very active and but you know had a good jab and everything and
1: yeah and threw a lot of punches but like was not the kind of fighter who was going to be like you know he he definitely wanted to like dictate you know what i mean he he wanted to press press the fight but so was stanley ketchel so yes. that would be there probably be a lot of fucking mauling in that fight actually
0: There would be man a lot of headbutting and mauling but i think it would just i don't know man it would be brutal i'm not sure how like um pleasing it would be to watch on tv because, like you said, it would be a lot of inside. If the referee just kind of lets them go, then <laughs> it could be really interesting because it would, it would be grueling. You know what I mean? And- All right. So here's <laughs>
1: what happens Frank Cappuccino's the referee. Yeah. He's calling He's Kurt's calling Stanny, Stanislaw. And then he starts, <laughs> and, he's, and he's calling Jake Jacob. Yes. Jacob, let go of his head, Jacob. Come, Come on, Jacob. Jacob.
0: What are you doing? Yeah, yeah.
1: Stanislaw, I don't like the way you're hooking him. Come on.
0: But the thing about Ketchell, and yes, he's a, he's a part of that era where there's like a lot of mauling and everything like that. But if you watch him, and there are, there are a lot of, uh, thank God there have been historians out there that have been able to um, fix up some of the tapes that have been, you know. And don't hoard
1: them. them to themselves, yeah.
0: Exactly. And they, and they reformat them and readjust them for the modern era that like they're a little bit, they're back in like more or less the same speed that they should be. Yeah. They're not set up, they're not anything. And you can get a better sense of how they fought. And Ketchell, even though he still is a little wild, very wild, and, like, you know, his style um, is more so for that era as opposed to what you would see decades on, you can still see, like, the finesse that is there with him. Like, his feet are always in place for everything that he throws or his purpose for what he's doing. And every punch that he kind of goes with, he can, like, go and be flowing enough to land another combination. And he hit hard enough, he was ferocious enough and smart enough with his with his placement that, like, he kind of raised himself a little bit above contemporaries before the wheels started falling off um before his untimely murder and what was it like 1910 or so so it's like it, it'll be it would be interesting man and not only that like i think his physical strength considering the era that he fought in where he was obviously fighting guys bigger than him a lot of the times or smaller and he was known as like a strong guy who just was able that a lot of people weren't able to like hold off and um Lamada wasn't known as a guy that was bullying and stronger than most people. It would be interesting to see a fighter that Lamada probably wouldn't have the strength advantage over like that. Yeah,
1: and on top of that, dude, I mean, it, there's, there is something to be said, at least in terms of toughness and endurance uh, for fighters who are going 45 fucking rounds, bro. Yeah. Like, I mean, any way you slice it uh, even if it's 45 rounds of mauling like that wears it out that wears you out like that's not just 45 rounds of doing nothing so i mean any fighter that's able to go you know whatever above 15 20 25 rounds that kind of shit um they're obviously on a different level in terms of endurance and so this would definitely be war of attrition type of shit i would imagine and Damn, I don't know. I mean, I would probably go with Lamada just because he fought like early. He beat the better fighters, but like not by a ton, though. Like that's the thing is like not, yeah, I don't know, dude. I don't know. I mean, maybe Lamata, but that's tough.
0: I don't think it's split decision. like it would be a close fight. And I wouldn't consider it be like, oh, it's gonna be one of the greatest fights of all time. No, it would be just a bloody, brutal grueling fight between two bulls that just kind of come together and i mauling a lot but like referee is going to be continuously yelling at them probably <laughs> some points are going to be taken for low blows and head butts and various things because Ketchell had no problem especially for the era that he came from given the business to whatever he needed to do yeah. i mean the guy sucker punched jack johnson for god's sake
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, and if if the rumors about him you know double crossing jack johnson or whatever true then i mean you got some fucking balls dude
0: you really did i'm still that's and you can kind of like you can kind of like believe it too because like if you watch that fight if you actually have the patience to watch that they're just kind of going about it where it looks like they kind of you know kind of um what would you say like um agreeing with each other right they're just you know yeah really w- cool. what
1: teddy atlas calls the the silent the silent,
0: silent contract. contract yes yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah, Until there's a lot Ketchum. of
1: locking up and a lot of like pushing and yeah.
0: Until Ketchow finally decides, you know what? Hey, looking. By the way, bow, bow. Yeah. And Johnson kind of like like the fuck. It looks over. Oh, okay, okay. Are you serious? Really? Oh, all right. I right, bet. Gotcha.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then just hammer. Oh,
0: oh, and then walks to the corner.
1: Yeah, brushes his fucking face off of his glove.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah that would well, be that would be an absolutely brutal brutal fight so i mean i'd i'd probably I, go it LaMotta,
0: distance. But... Ketchel's not getting knocked out by lamada and no probably Ketchum, not. as strong as he is he's not taking out lamada because lamada's proven himself to probably have the grand most granite chin ever and yeah i think lamada wins it by a point or two but it's just gonna be a hard fight to score it's gonna be a fight that a lot of people are gonna go back and forth on and both guys are going to go to the hospital with deformed faces afterwards for either their heads in and for the punches inflicted as well as their various other, you know. Yeah,
1: probably, yeah. All right, I got a, I got a good one. I, at least I got one that I think is good. Let's and hear it. they're not from two different eras, but it's a fight that many people felt should have happened or wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. And personally, I think that it might not be one of the fighter's, like, best divisions because Mike McCallum's division might be junior middleweight instead of middleweight, but I ain't going to argue too much. Still, I'm saying Marvelous Marvin Hagler versus Mike McCallum. Oof. I mean, I think the level of skill in there is underrated yes. for sure. And But, I mean, they both could definitely fucking clobber. They both could get in there, dig to the body. You know, they both were hey. – Bang,
0: bang, bang.
1: Yeah, dude, good technicians, but just power punchers, too. That shit would have been fucking just,
0: Well, yeah, when people were like, oh, was McCallum really a big puncher? Okay, watch his fight with Donald Curry. Watch what he did to poor Julian Jackson, because he did to Jackson what Jackson did to everyone else after that. Exactly. (laughs) um, Yeah, man, McCallum, look, we go back, and there's a lot of people, especially on boxing Twitter over the years, People that don't know any better have, like, gotten the notion that McCallum was ducked by literally everybody of the 80s from heavyweight to flyweight. And that's not the case. Was McCallum ducked? Yes. All right? Like, Duran had the option to fight him, and Duran was like, you know what? I'm good on that. I'm going to move up to fight more, you know, Hearns, which was more lucrative. Um, Was Hearns actively looking to fight him? No. But when people say, like, oh, yeah, Marvin Hagler ducked McCallum, that is utter nonsense, okay? Sugar Ray Leonard, Duck McCallum. No, that was nonsense too. Leonard wasn't even really active during that time. All right, I think he was retired yeah. and the only time he came back when McCallum was champion was to fight Hagler and then he retired promptly again. So that's gone. Hagler was a middleweight nearing the end of his career when McCallum first became junior middleweight champion in 1984 or 85. So you think Hagler was actively looking for a guy like Mike McCallum. By the time this happened, Hagler was looking for Herbs. He was looking for Durant. He was looking for the Leonard's. Like he was looking for big challenges. McCallum wasn't going to do anything for him. So keep that in mind. Regardless of all that, McCallum still was one of the most supremely gifted fighters <clears> of <throat> the era. Improved a year as long as a, you know, eventual Hall of Famer or everything. The guy was just incredible. And skill-wise, yes, he would have been able to hang with Hagler, which a lot of guys at that time wouldn't have been able to do, man. Hagler was just a beast. Whether it was, you know, him just putting the pressure on you and knocking you the fuck out because you just couldn't handle the heat or if he had to box you like he did with Durant, he could do that too, man. He was very versatile. One of the greatest switch hitters in history. And um, all that said, I think he just would have been a little bit too much for McCallum altogether. So it would have been a good fight in and in beautiful boxing by both, man. McCallum would have had his moments and definitely could have tagged Hagler because Hagler could be touched. It wasn't like, you know, he was Mr. Defensive. And but... Uh, when it just comes down to it, I think Hagler just surges and wins like a competitive close, but clear decision.
1: I agree. Yeah, I I agree. I think that would have been really fun and great to watch. And yeah. then somewhere around like, you know, assuming this is like a 15 round fight, probably <laughs> something like around eight, nine, you know, Hagler starts to take over. Like he starts to kind of, you know put the yeah. motherfucking yes yeah, starts to lay the but wood McCallum down is still
0: with him. like i think he still hangs with him but there's a clear difference and then yeah. yeah starts
1: to separate a little bit and then i mean i'm not even saying necessarily he stops him because mike mccallum also was tough as shit tough as fucking yeah, nails, incredible
0: chin too as well.
1: but i mean you know yeah I, I think that Hagler was just a little bit better and could do more things just a little bit better and just yeah. was a fucking hard man dude the kind of guy who not sure you would have been one to 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 take no for an answer in a fight like that, you know.
0: Dude, we've, I mean, the reason why the fans love Hagler as much as they do, and he's been adored as much as he has been over the years, is because of his take no prisoners, prisoners attitude. What he had to come through, his hard scrabble, um, coming up from his career, never leaving the Petronelli brothers, um, being denied over and over and over, first title fight getting denied going to England, beating Alan Minter which I think that just celebrated that's anniversary what was that yesterday. And um, immediately after the fight, getting pelted with beer bottles by stupid racist fans in England, um, still trying to gather his respect throughout the, the middleweight range, just ravaging one dude after another while clamoring for a big fight. Finally, the welterweights and junior middle, you know, they start moving up and challenging him and he has to defend his title again. Like, yeah, man, Hagler is the ultimate just... Another one too that just deserves like when you think about it, when you want to make a documentary on somebody, where's the hagler documentary? Where's a hagler movie? You know? Yeah,
1: I don't Actually, know, man. Don't make
0: a Hagler movie. Most boxing movies are trash. Where's the hagler documentary?
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I don't know what these production companies are doing or how they're picking their stories, but stop God making knows the same they're ones.
0: Pick a, as a as Stop
1: as an making the same that. ones, bro. There's yeah. So yeah, many fighters.
0: So
1: All right. yeah. what about welterweight?
0: Welterweight. I have a fun one. Um, another one because the anniversary of his fight was the other day. Sugar Shane Mosley when he annihilated Ricardo Mayorga. So Sugar Sugar Shane Mosley against Mickey Walker. Okay. Yeah. All right.
1: <laughs> so, like Welterweight
0: you're like, wow, that's okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and like welterweight Shane you know like for a minute there like i'm I, talking ob-
0: shane when he fought oscar delaware the first time so we're talking 2000 shane
1: yeah and he looked real good he, i mean you know the the whole power boxing deal yeah, the yeah. you know uh jack mosley and his whole i mean and i i do think that he was onto to something with that too though because i mean it was more uh i think a lot of people during the time almost associated that with almost like bow or some shit where it was like you know, like, oh, you're more into, like, the fitness of boxing and shit like that, and you guys aren't really talking so much about techniques, but he was, and he was obviously, uh, you know, Shane Mosley's style of kind of, like, coming in wide but doing it on purpose and, like, punching in combination but punching in, like, these kind of sweeping, like, uh, combinations that were, like, fluid but, like, you know, really powerful and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, dude, he was – he obviously was a – at his peak a really good fighter that was good with uh, like you know reflexive kind of boxing and shit like that but obviously Vernon Forrest and to a degree a couple other fighters too like uh, I remember even Adrian Stone dude before the knockout they were talking all sorts of like shit before the knockout on the commentating and then it was like "Whoa, whoa whoa like he got laid out so bad.
0: Bro, that but, was such a nasty knockout, man. He did he did poor Adrian Stone nasty.
1: Yeah, dude, and Adrian Stone wasn't even like a bad fighter or anything, but oh my god, he just got I mean, yeah, annihilated.
0: Stone was, good, Stone was a was a good like lower-end contender for the era. Clearly wasn't going to be an elite guy, but he was a tough guy and yeah. a guy Yeah, and mostly just treating him like a trash bag. Oh. Yeah,
1: like he was kind of like dismeasuring for a couple of rounds or something, but that is best I love yeah.
0: I, that's what I love about Mosley is that, like, unlike other fighters, elite, uh, other elite fighters, Mosley didn't take his time with guys that didn't deserve to be in the ring with him. Like, if you didn't have no business being in the ring with him, he would take your ass out quickly and do it, like, you know, with a vengeance. Guys like him, um, when he first moved up to welterweight, his first fight was against Wilfredo Rivera, and Rivera fought a who's who of that era and gave everyone hell, and Mosley was the first one that was able to stop him. Sure, I won a bunch of rounds, but I mean Rivera wasn't the type of guy that they were going to take out quickly, anyways. And then Willie Wise, who had just come off of a decision over a shot <laughs> Chavez, um, that was the Mosley. That's what that's what I mean. Mosley just thrashed him, man. Wise, poor guy, who was you know feeling a career high after beating Chavez and couldn't punch himself, but had decent skills, gets thrown into a main event HBO slot with a rampage in Mosley, who's trying to get a Delahoya fight in.
1: Yeah, he's Moseley like, all right, I'm making my name off you now, buddy.
0: Yeah, like, Mosley <laughs> treated him like a chew toy, you know? And after he beats Oscar, same thing. The the Antonio Diaz, who, you know, poor guy too, man, because, like, he most of the time now, he was, what, fighting at Junior Welterweight at that point in the early 2000s? And making his name beating most of the guys at Junior Welterweight. He goes, oh, hey, fight Shane Mosley at Welterweight for the championship when he finally gets the pay And you're like, really? So, of course, Mosley blasts him. And then Adrian Stone was just, well, uh, him and yeah, Mickey Walker would have been a good style clash.
1: It it definitely would have, dude, because that's a you want to talk about fighters whose style like from back in the day, twenties and thirties, yeah. whose styles actually do hold up just fine. Mickey Walker is another fighter whose style holds up just fine. Uh, because I mean, it, there's something to say for aggression. You know what I mean? Like aggression doesn't get old. Aggression doesn't. Obviously, there's different ways. Um, and we talk about like those collisions and clinch fighting and shit like that and different things that are allowed, uh, that were allowed then that aren't allowed now, et cetera, et cetera. We know about all that, but there are other fighters. Sam Lankford was one of them. Mickey Walker is another who were smart enough to get around that type of shit. Like whatever it was, the referee was going to allow, they were going to figure out whatever rules they were fighting under, they were going to figure it out. Uh, because you know, they were, either that skilled or that aggressive or whatever, that was Mickey Walker. He was just a little dude who you could not deter. He was going to be on your fucking ass no matter what. And at welterweight, he was, uh, if you look at photos of, like I I think I actually a little bit ago <laughs> posted on the Boxing History account, posted a photo of him and Cowboy Paget. and you look at the size of Mickey Walker's legs, they're fucking huge like and i mean we're talking about obviously not like in the 1926 or whatever this is these dudes not on fucking like windstroll or anything like that the guy was just had massive fucking legs and he was that's why he was so tough to deter because he'd fucking use his legs to get in there and just bore in and just yeah, shoot no no, a fucking death
0: walker worked. walker worked on um, jack daniels and paps <laughs>
1: literally he was yeah. like in, in, in his book i have over here that's like half of what he talks about is how much he was drinking during that time
0: seriously and you know what's interesting about walker i realized as a kid and grew to appreciate as an adult is that in mythical matchups whenever they would, you know whoever was like the the mit, the number one guy of a division back in the day they would always like do um an article comparing them how he would do against so-and-so's of the eras right and i remember the first one i read perno whitaker how he would do against, you know, different guys from lightweight all the way to middleweight or whatever it was, and Mickey Walker was one of the first was one of the first guys that they had him losing a fight against, and they said that Walker would have just like laughed at Werderker's punches, walked through his defense a while, and just kind of blasted him out after like in the middle of the late rounds and would have just you know stomped him out, and I think they had Walker beating Oscar De La Hoya, they had Walker beating other guys like, Walker is one of those dudes from and because and the reason why I say this is because. Whenever they compare those errors, guys like Trinidad, De La Hoya, Whitaker, they always came out on top, usually against some of those guys from those errors. Walker was always one of the few exceptions that usually had him winning by a knockout or so. I'm not saying he would have knocked out Mosley. All I know is that he wouldn't have been awed by anything Mosley was doing. Walker fought, clearly fought guys a lot bigger and stronger than him. A lot of the times, even at welterweight, even this was before he moved up to heavyweight and made that incredible, you know, drive to the top before um, Max and derailed them. So you look at all these, you know, these factors and stuff like that, and I have to kind of like go with Walker maybe on a close decision. I don't think he's going to knock uh, Mosley out, but I think that he might beat him.
1: I think that, dude, that that style, uh, I mean, it's, I'm not going to malign Purnell at all, but I think that Mickey Walker's style is really overwhelming for most other styles. Um, you know, he was very aggressive and very good at infighting and very good at like stifling an opponent. And there weren't a whole lot of fighters who figured out how to like tame that. And I mean, yeah, obviously with somebody like Shane Mosley, he was a really good puncher. So there's obviously the the possibility that Walker could walk into something and he was, he could be hit too. Oh okay. yeah, dude. I'd probably go with him. Uh, Just he more relentless. And I think a little bit more, like Shane Mosley's looking more to pick his spots and Mickey Walker's like not going to let him type yeah. of thing.
0: And Mosley too is not going to run away from him. Like he's going to go try to go like, you know, have a firefight with him and he's faster than Walker. So you get better, some of the better of the exchanges. And I wouldn't be surprised if he even deck Walker once or twice, but like this overall, especially if it goes to like 15 rounds, Walker's just going to overwhelm him after a while. Just and a then that man, he was just grueling. The only dude that was able, the only guys that were able to keep up with Walker was someone like Harry Greb who was just a bigger version of him and even more crazier than Walker, you know what I mean? And then from there, it was, you know, like, the look at the success he would still have at heavyweight. Like, he was able to uh, score a draw with Jack Sharkey, who on most accounts, if you read it, Walker probably deserved the decision that fight. Um, he beat other guys that were just, like, Bearcat White, who was a giant compared to him and others. Like, you know, Walker was fearless, you know, just an absolutely fearless guy. He went to lay heavyweight, challenged Tommy Lochran challenged um maxi rosenblum like this is a dude that's and, like my and height. a
1: couple of those fights most people felt he won at the time yeah. too
0: totally this was a guy that was my height you know and by all accounts he wasn't mr training you know he wasn't a spartan for training which most guys from that era weren't so
1: yeah he just liked fighting it wasn't even yeah. so much about yeah he just, he just liked to fight so it's like all right we're fighting next week cool yeah it's i'd probably go with him too it's a. Uh, it's not to yeah like talk shit on Shane Mosley at all but we're also we're talking about Mickey Walker here.
0: Yeah. It it's would Mickey just Walker. it would be a hell of a fight. That would have been a fight of the year easily.
1: I'm going to cop out a little bit on this welterweight because I mean yeah, I mean I, I I'm giving in a little bit to the masses here. I'm okay. going Ray Robinson versus Ray Leonard.
0: I mean that's the fight. Look look bro, everybody always wants to put those two together. It's easy enough and like you know, that that's uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, dude, it's it's uh, I think I, that I, a lot of people are going to be jumping real quick to say Ray Robinson, and I get it, I get it. You know, uh, that's the consensus greatest of all time. I'm not going to argue against that because you know it, it depends on which boxing history circle you're in. Because some people are going to be like, no, Greb, no Langford. Uh, most or, most I think are going to say Robinson, but like I'm not going to argue. Um, so I'm not going to argue the tendency to just ima- automatically go Ray Robinson. I'm just saying that at their peaks, you know, and at their best, I don't think you should sleep on Ray
0: Leonard. Fuck no. Oh my God, no. Are you kidding me? Just saying. Think about this too, man. Like, look, Robinson's considered the go at Walter well, White and deservedly so. He's considered the goal by many, just of all time, pound for pound. But, you know, there was, Robinson was still like, as great as he was as fluid as he was the supreme boxer he could still be touched you know what i mean like he wasn't you know like as a he was an aggressive fighter he wasn't just like a sit back boxer too like he was aggressive as most guys were the era like he would go in there and want to fight you too and he could be touched and he didn't mind being touched so he can get his punches in there he wasn't a slugger where he was gonna like take three to get one or anything like that incredible you know he was obviously very defensively well but he didn't mind getting hit, and Leonard clearly could hit and knew how to box and stuff like that, too. Like, their skills are very, very evenly matched at that point. Leonard had his absolute peak, and Robinson has peak at Welter, where you're just you know, and you, you imagine your two favorite things and mesh them together, like peanut butter and jelly or any other type of, like, perfect combination, and that's what you got with those two. Hence why Leonard had his nickname. Like, they just kind of, perfect, you know? And man, like, Robinson would have to really pull himself on that fight. Like, dudes with lesser skills and just overall, le- you know, lesser fighters than Leonard gave Robinson fits at welterweight. Can't, can't go wrong. You can't think that Robinson had his way with every single welterweight and every single fighter um, that he ever fought before, like, you know, the prevalent footage that we saw on middleweight. Like, Tommy Bell was able to drop him on his face before Robinson got up was able, and was able to beat him um, on the decision to win the welterweight championship. He struggled in other fights. Artie Levine—I don't know if that was at middleweight or light or at welterweight—but Artie Levine was a monster puncher who uh, almost knocked um, Robinson completely out before Robinson was able to rally and stop him himself. Like there were, you know, there's instances there. So to say this would be an out-and-out victory because Robinson's considered to go is just absolutely wrong. Um, all that being said, I—I I don't know, man. I could, I would. See, it's, yeah, tough. It, it's tough. It's really, really tough, man. Because here's the thing: like, if you put them, if they if they fought every day for one week, and there's seven days in a week, I would have to say Robinson wins four, and Leonard wins maybe three or three, two, and one. There'd be a draw in between there at some point. Like that's how I'm going to look. Like you know, that's how close they are. Robinson wouldn't completely sweep them that whole time. Do I think he's just slightly, shit? Excuse me. But I think he's just um slightly there, just slightly ahead of Leonard. Yes, slightly, ever so slightly. But out of anyone in welterweight history, in my well, almost yeah. And of anyone in welterweight history, including Floyd, including um, Jose Annapolis and others, I think Leonard gives him the toughest one head to head. Tommy Hearns, you know.
1: You know it's it's tough, dude. Because like, also uh, obviously, with all of the with the obvious skill that Ray Robinson had. And uh, things that uh, people had talked about, like even Joe Lewis, one of the things that he had said about Ray Robinson was one of the great things about Ray Robinson was that he could knock you out going backwards, like most fighters need to be going forward to knock you out, but he could knock you out going backwards, and blah blah blah. But you know, we know about all that stuff and also how skilled he was, but uh, we are. There is more welterweight footage than we'd previously thought because the old line is that, like, oh, we don't even have video of him in his prime. We actually do have video footage of him fighting at lightweight and welterweight. There is some, but it's just not as much. However, we don't have quite uh, as much to say. Like, Ray Leonard was, like, sadistic. Like, when he got a fighter hurt or when he wanted to finish a fighter, he was a mean bastard and i don't know that ray robinson quite had that in him unless you pissed him off he yeah. wasn't like you know i don't know that it came like and one of the things ray robinson said was that he wouldn't he didn't feel like he was a fighter he felt like he was somebody who would like he liked to dance he liked rhythm he liked music and he wanted to be a performer mm-hmm. but it was just that he had like found his way you know into fighting and so that that's what he knew and I mean, obviously, he was a fighter. But you know, my point being more just kind of like that instinct, Ray Leonard seemed more like and I don't know if it was his upbringing. I don't know if it was some shit that happened to him when he was younger. I don't know. All I know is that when he was in the ring, he seemed mean. And yeah. so uh, that's another thing about Ray Leonard that I can't like that I think goes for him in this fight, where if he starts to, you know, get any sort of advantage, man, it, he's gonna be a tough, tough guy to overcome. But yeah, I mean, I think the theme in these mythical matchups is generally that, like, the greater fighter or the fighter that we rate as greater is generally going to find the way to win. And that's probably here, too. You know, Ray Robinson just finds a way to win. They fight seven times, you know, yeah, I'd give them the advantage.
0: Totally, totally. But yeah, man, that's just one of those topics that, like, people over the years, that was the main fight that people would always come up who would win between Leonard and Robinson. Then Floyd came along. And then, you know, that became the main theme. Well, who would between, win between Floyd and Sugar Leonard? Who would win between Floyd and Sugar Robinson? Who would win between Floyd and Tommy Hearns? You know, and I have all those fights. Literally, the worst stylistic matchup out of that is Tommy Hearns or Floyd because Tommy Hearns would blast Floyd into another dimension and all around <laughs> to Lesley. Sorry, Floyd, that would That would just absolutely happen. But um,
1: Punch your shoulder roll right off your right off just, Now that you mention it, I think of the I'm bleeding Floyd. inside of my chest.
0: Floyd would have a lot more success, in my opinion, and this is saying something, I think he would have more success against Sugar Ray Leonard and Sugar Ray Robinson than he would against Tommy Hearns, just because of the styles and the way the body and everything like that. Like, turns is just an absolute nightmare for him. So, but that's, yeah. you know, for, for Lightweight, the move down another division for Lightweight, um, I think I have a really interesting one here. The human windmill, Henry Armstrong, against Carlos Ortiz. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good matchup, dude. That's a really good matchup because yeah. you know, obviously, Armstrong with the nonstop offense, and I mean, he could punch, but wasn't like a big puncher. It was more that he was. You nah, know, he was
0: just uh, overwhelmed you. Yeah.
1: But then Carlos Ortiz more of like a box, kind of a somewhat classic boxer puncher with a really good emphasis on the puncher because the dude yes. could fucking lay you out. <laughs> uh, that's a really good matchup. Especially because it's like, you almost got to figure out which, uh, which division or whatever. And I think that Henry Armstrong probably faced and beat the best lightweights out of, you know, especially that era, dude, 1930s lightweights. It's yeah, a yeah. tough, tough era. Lou Ambers, you know Lou you know
0: Montanes, yep.
1: fucking like nine different Lou's in there. Lieutenant, <laughs> you know, it was earlier, but still. Anyway, you know, uh, I think yeah, dude, that's a really good matchup.
0: It would be man, and, and again, I think the styles, like you said, Ortiz was more of a was a boxer puncher, but like you said, emphasis, he can knock the hell out of you. He can Knock the hell out of Sugar Ramos. Knock the hell out of um uh, the Filipino hero.
1: Flashy Lorde.
0: You, Lord. That's it. Ooh, um,
1: that shit was brutal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and a host of other fighters, man. Ortiz was insanely popular in the New York City area. You know what I mean? Like, his, ty- his type of popularity wouldn't be seen by um the Puerto Rican fans. So would it be ri- that would only be rivaled by a guy like, I would say, um, WWE champion Pedro Morales when he came in. The, the type of popularity that like, if they see their hometown hero getting whooped up fans would jump over the ring and try to stab the guy to death to try to save him. You know what I mean? Like Ortiz had just hugely popular when I think it was before the second or third Ismael Laguna fight. um, Ortiz was set up where they had an open workout in uh, Harlem or the Bronx and the entire borough looked like just came out to watch him, you know, and there's like a famous photo of like, you know, the announcer and everything like that in there. And it's crazy shit. Like, Really, really good fighter. It's very, very popular at this time, too. Um, mostly known as a lightweight champion, and rightfully so, because that was the division that he coveted and had more presence at that time. But also a very good junior welterweight champion, too. But anyways, um, yeah, that's it's like fire and ice. Armstrong was... They, was, they called him, you know, like windmill. They called him the human windmill for a reason, dude. Like, he was incredible like i think then they say it was because he had like a slower heart rate or something like that that he was able to just like have like in wild stamina
1: i've heard stuff like that and i don't i have absolutely no idea how true it was but i mean I, i mean it's just the the stats are unreal dude they're honestly unreal like uh being able to obviously hold uh world titles like lineal you know legitimate world titles in different divisions at the time even just that alone on the surface is is really impressive. But then you add to it that he defeated actually, you know, real-life good fighters on top of that to to win these world titles. And on top of that, almost defeated a fourth in Seferino Garcia to hold a middleweight title as well. Jesus, yeah, dude. I mean, like, these
0: are guys that beat Hall of Famers to win all their championships, right? Because Ortiz beat Delilio um, Loy... To win the wait no he didn't he excuse me he knocked out Kenny Lane to win the junior welterweight title so I think right
1: yeah and I think he made it he would have made a defense over he a defense Leal,
0: right? yeah he made a defense against Lloyd but still that's a hall of famer and then he wins the lightweight champion championship against Joe uh old bones brown who's you know criminally underrated today and yeah so dude he like right. ruled
1: the division for like eight years or something yeah. like that like
0: as an older fighter as well you know how, does, how is that a cool. footnote that's nuts never talked about today. Really like think about the last time you heard his name on Twitter. Probably so. the last
1: time I posted something. <laughs>
0: exactly, you know. So anyways, though, you know, like the credentials and then you look at Henry Armstrong, pd sarin for the featherweight championship, um Lou Ambers for the lightweight title and um you know, Barney Ross who was obviously at the tail end of his career but still one of the all-time greats, probably a top 10 all-time great for the welterweight championship. So like these are amazing credentials you're talking about here. And then if you put their styles together, they would just mesh perfectly because Ortiz would definitely be having to, having to hold off Armstrong, who's just going to be rampaging and trying to windmill him and take over and overwhelm him like he did with everybody else. Ortiz, though, had the power to get Armstrong to back up too, like you said, especially that right hand that he had in his overall. And his boxing skills, like he was slick enough in there that he would just like, you know, his counter punching and everything, which he would be forced to do would just, oh, man, it would be brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
1: Yeah, dude, that's a that's a tough matchup. I mean, I think that I tend to probably go with, like in those kinds of matchups, like the fighter who puts out the most offense, because, yeah. I mean, I don't see Carlos Ortiz knocking out Henry Armstrong. I mean... Absolutely not. Yeah, no, no, no offense to Ortiz. It's just that Armstrong was just a rough customer.
0: Well, Armstrong and, was only stopped once early. Well, I mean, no, he was stopped... I know by uh, Fritzie Zivik, but he wasn't laid out. You know, the only time I think he was laid out in his career was like his first pro fight as Melody Jackson when he fought a guy by the name of Ali Vano. So, um, yeah. you know, Armstrong definitely proved his medal. Plus, if you look at the injuries he sustained uh, later on in his career, like, you know, Lou Ambers, the nasty, gnarly cut where he was just guzzling blood in his mouth, stuff like that. You're not going to knock him out, no.
1: Yeah, and against Zivic too, like he got absolutely bruised to shit and a lot of that, who knows how much of that was even legit, you know, like actual punches, so Maybe probably not a lot of it, but I mean, you know, he, he was going to be absolute hell to stop or even to try to stop, um, but I mean... You know, Carlos Ortiz probably wasn't going to get stopped or anything like that himself either. It was, I'm guessing that he probably just gets taken to a decision where he, he loses a decision, you know, to on on offense, you know?
0: Totally. That's how I see it. But I think it would be really close, like a really, really close fight because, and a lot of fans would watch it and think that Ortiz would get robbed. Like it would be one of those that I think there would be a big debate where. Yeah, you know, don't put that fight in San Juan. Like, yeah absolutely not don't put it well if you put it in new york put it at msg definitely (laughs) that would be huge at msg that would have been that
1: would be that would be a lot of fun that would have
0: been a great fight at msg and yeah that's mine
1: well talking about style matchups i mean there there's that's the other kind of uh you know constant in these mythical matchups is like the weird style matchups and stuff like that that i think are fun another good style matchup that i think also is between two all-time lightweight greats and this is a real good Uh, lightweight all-time great topic of debate and that is Roberto Duran versus Benny Leonard hell yeah I mean it's a it's a great style matchup you know you got a boxer puncher technician type against more of a pure boxer who can like punch a little bit but definitely more of a pure boxer so
0: who's the and what's the common denominator between the two
1: Ray motherfucking Arcel there you go i mean and he might have had a tough time uh choosing on that one he was always partial to benny leonard but you know uh
0: dude, that's a, that's benny another Leonard was part of his era so and yeah.
1: that's another crazy thing is that like for decades and decades and decades benny leonard was considered like the like the gold standard yes. for like pound for pound like yeah he might not have been the greatest, like. He, he might not even been the greatest lightweight or whatever, but he's the greatest fighter that I ever saw. You know, the greatest, the most skilled fighter I ever saw Shitloads of people who knew a lot said that for decades.
0: Well, Bud Schilberg, who was one of the prominent writers in, in history. And, um, he wrote a very interesting article when he talked about as a kid, his dad was a big boxing fan and would always go to the fights to watch Benny Leonard. And, um, he would always beg his dad to go watch, you know, or go watch, uh, go to the MSG with him. And his dad always told him, no, blah, blah. Kind of reminded me to a degree, obviously not the same level, but like me asking my dad when I was small to go to my uncle's house to watch the fights with him. You know, you're, you're curious. You just want to see what it's all about, right? So after years and years and years and years, stuff like that, Um, finally, there was one time I forget who he was going to fight. It was... Richie Mitchell, or one of them, I think it might have been. Was it Richie Mitchell? I think. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, one of the Mitchell brothers. So I had, to, it might have been Richie Mitchell, I think. But that was the um, – Schulberg said that his dad was going to take him to that fight. And that whole day, Schulberg said he was at school and he was telling his friends, I'm going to go see the great Benny Leonard tonight. And he was throwing punches, and he was all hyped, and he was, like, you know, freaking out, right? And – um they get to they they get in the cab his dad tells him oh yeah get ready blah blah, blah. they dress up they get to msg and when they get to the gate the guy looks down and he was like what the hell he was like you have a kid with you and he was like yeah we're gonna go out our seats and he was like i can't let you He was like there's no kids allowed in here i'm not letting you bring a kid in and the dad is like are you serious you try to pay the guy off and the guy was like i can't let a kid in here I'm like we well, just can't do it and so the dad's just like you know he said bud Schulberg starts like bawling because he realized he's not gonna be able to watch it his dad realized the circumstance, threw Bud Schulberg in a cab, drove back to the house, dumped him off, and just ran back to MSG as quick as he could, you know, to, to catch the fight. And then um, – I would have done the same, Bud. You all would have. I mean, what are you going to do at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't waste a ticket because your kid can't get him. Man. Just bring him back home and go back. <laughs>
1: Yeah, i'll take you in a few years good yeah sorry. man
0: i'll tell you about what happened I'll, you know i'll <laughs> buy you an ice cream next tomorrow or something i'm sorry <laughs> like, i'll
1: bring you back a program for five yeah. cents
0: so he said the next thing he came in and they told him all about the fight how incredible it was how leonard actually got hurt came back rallied stopped him yada 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 but by the finally time he said by the time he was finally able to see ben leonard live and that was when he fought jimmy Mclarnan. And he was just like, I, and I think he, um, by that time, his dad was still around, but he didn't even have the heart to tell him his dad what the result was. But that gives you an example. I'm just trying to say about, like you said, what, how people looked upon Benny Leonard back then. Like, he was talked about in hushed tones, man. By everyone from that era, like, they talked about Dempsey and others. Like, they were just looked upon as, like, the gold standard, the all-time great. And if you even dared to besmirch their name, you were going to catch a knuckle sandwich by one of those old-timers how dare you
1: I don't know. back when everybody was worshiping dempsey mm-hmm. and they were like introducing fighters into the ring they'd bring benny leonard to the ring and be like bah! you know that type of shit of
0: course. so
1: you know he was obviously revered just uh because there are gonna be people gonna be people who listen in or watch and go like benny fucking what what are you talking about this is roberto duran we're talking about I'm just saying, you know, like we're like, he wasn't just some scrub, you know, obviously. Dude, and you Leonard know,
0: style is another one that holds up. He was absolutely brilliant, man.
1: 100%. 100%. And, and we're talking about a technician like Duran, who at lightweight, you know, was far more mobile, used uh, angles far more than he did as he moved up in weight and was fucking around with his weight more. Uh, and, you know, and getting out of shape and between fights more and more. Uh, obviously he was just far more snappy and mobile Uh, as a lightweight and so that's dangerous on and from an offensive standpoint but then you have somebody like leonard who defensively and with his footwork could potentially deal with that so i mean that that makes for a really really interesting matchup
0: and man they both came from incredible eras when it comes to the lightweights like leonard had to deal with guys like lou tendler who's considered one of the greatest fighters ever never to win a world title and other contemporaries of that time like you know Willie Willie Ritchie who was a former lightweight champion um Richie Mitchell like there was a lot of you know um, Rocky Kansas um there was a lot of different I'm, I'm missing a ton of different guys too but just like think of like the body work that he had to do and the only time that he really lost in that era is when he moved up to welterweight to fight Jack Britton and that fight was shrouded in controversy because he knocked in a fight that was like, you know, was already acting kind of funny to begin with, but Leonard was the favorite. He knocks Britain down, and after he knocks him down, goes over and hits him intentionally, kind of Roy Jones, Montel Griffin style. Britton goes down again and gets disqualified. And everyone's just kind of like, "What ja? the fuck? What? Why?" That was
1: I, dude. And the the reports on that fight are crazy too. Because if you read yeah. the reports, they basically say that he literally was like, or at least going by the description was like it was like it was like over like it yeah. was like shit was done and he just was like now nah, fuck this just went over and bop <laughs> it was like
0: and they don't understand it because like what the one, did he lose his head because apparently he was getting outboxed earlier by a Briton who was a, all one of the all-time greats himself and other stuff but no it just but to, to get to the point man you know leonard rightfully so was considered probably the greatest lightweight at that point and even through the different decades, like you had great lightweights that came up, but like Ike Williams and others, man, who were just like legendary fighters. But like Leonard was that dude. And then, but no one had ever seen anything like Duran when he came up in boxing when he came up. Like, I mean, even Ray Arcel had said that. Like, they were just like, there was never a guy that was just born to fight like Duran was. I don't think we still have seen anything like him. You know, like he is probably the most natural fighter, just pure fighter we've ever seen. Just like, you know, watching Duran is like watching you know a live action movie, half horror film, half just like you know, live execution, whatever you just want to put it. like you can't turn your you can't turn your eyes away from him, you know what I mean? like it was just you just knew you were getting something with him. and that was the beauty of him as that was that like as much of a crazy raging animal that he was, and you just knew you saw it in his eyes, you saw the hatred you saw that he just wanted to kill. you just saw the viciousness in him the stuff you would say outside of the ring after those fights, everything like that. It was what he did inside there and how beautiful it looked at, how fucking beautiful he was in the ring, pulling it off that you were just like, my God, like, you know, this is beauty and the beast. Like, because it wasn't just unrivaled, you know, um, carnage, you know what I'm saying? Like this dude could go in there and the way he was slipping and ducking and like, he could just fight on the inside and parry and this counter punching. And he was always in the right position to bang you out and just like, Dude, no one had seen anything like that, man. It was the most purest thing of fighting form that you just it was incredible. So a guy like Arcel, who had seen everything up until that point, then you know, did the most, the smartest thing you could possibly imagine. Which a lot of stupid a lot of trainers wouldn't do because everyone wants to try to mold them into their own thing. He was like, This dude is a natural fighter. He's just born to do what he does. Don't don't fuck with his style. Just get him in the shape. And just tweak things a little here and there. Just, you know, give him, like, a game plan. But don't mess with what he does because what he does is perfect for him. You know what I mean? Because, like she said, watch Freddie Brown and stuff. And Freddie Brown would try to make him down. He's like, no, stop that. Like, don't do that with him. Just let him be who he is. You know what I mean? Because if you try to tame him, if you try to tame him, if you try to cultivate him into something that he's not, he's going to rebel and it's not going to work. Just let him be natural. And him being natural, look what happened
1: there seems to be some debate among like the history types as to who who specifically is you know responsible some people say freddie brown some people say arcel but from what i've read it's more what you describe and that's it was like not so much you know a fight or anything in the corner but it was that you know arcel was trying to like do less like that he was like you don't you don't need to do anything with them like you don't need to train him you just need to like Hone his skills. You need to like tame him. You, know, you try to fucking get him to do what he's supposed to do. And that it was is always right. the difficult thing with Duran. And if you look at the, uh you know, early newspaper articles and shit like that describing him, a lot of them is like the stuff that you're saying, you know, animalistic terms, you know, with like beast and, ver- you know, ferocious and vicious, violent. And, you know, and it's legit because shit was scary.
0: It is, man. And so, it, it came to the point where they, like you said, they was like, don't try to, don't try to change his style so much because it's, a, you know, what's, what works for him is perfect. Just, you know, hone it in a little bit, but just get his ass in shape because as wild as he was in the ring, he was wild outside the ring. And there was many stories because Arcel at the time too, and this is true, Arcel wasn't in his training camp 24-7. Freddie Brown was the one that was with him from beginning to end. And Arcel even told him that because Freddie Brown was like, Arcel was still working. Like he was still half retired when the time he got brought in to start working with Duran in the early seventies, he was out of boxing for decades after basically being booted out by the mafia and um, almost being
1: literally hit in the head with a pipe.
0: Yes. With a lead pipe. Yeah. Because he had the nerve to run his own promotional shows and television. And after they warned him a few times, someone walked up and conked him. So he went to a different business venture altogether, became successful in that venture. I think it was like selling metal products or something. And um, by the time um, Duran's manager was like, hey, can you look at my guy, yada, yada, yada. And he came back first working with um, junior welterweight champion Alfonso Peppermint Frazier. And then going with Duran, he was still like kind of going part time. So he he brought in Freddie Brown, who was a renowned trainer himself, worked with tons of former champions in the past. And he was like, yo, just take care of him during training camp. I'll come in three weeks before the fight. We'll come up with a game plan and go from there. And that's how it always worked. But like you said, um, Freddie Brown was also a guy that was just really head on, always like you know, didn't take shit from anybody. And so those two used to clash all the time. Freddie Brown used to pack up his bags and leave. Duran would go chase him down the street, like you see Rocky chasing Mickey and stuff like that. But regardless, man, you know it somehow it still worked, and they became what's considered the greatest lightweight ever. But with that being said, here's the thing, Pat. Duran could be frustrated. Villamar Fernandez lasted 13 rounds and frustrated Duran in certain parts of that fight. Lou Bizarro lasted a long time in frustrated um, Duran in a certain parts of that fight before he got stopped. Yeah, he um, paid the price. <laughs> very much paid the price. And his brother almost got beat up for it, too. Um, Edwin Verouette twice went the distance with Duran. And he, and he made Duran like, you know struggle and made him look kind of bad a couple of times. All of those guys, I would consider not on the level of Benny Leonard, clearly in terms of just being a pure boxer and everything like that. You know what I mean? So Duran could be frustrated. He could be outboxed a little bit here and there. But I still think his overall being is his ferociousness would take over in a 15-round fight. I still think he comes through.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think, again, uh, with Duran, too, is just like the offense, it's it's really stifling. It's yes. really tough to deal with. And uh, in those he spots,
0: he out too, man. Would he had one <sighs> punch, out power, a lightweight if necessary. He just
1: you know, you you talk it like if you watch like most fights, and we'll get to the next, I swear, in a minute here. But when you watch it, this is just fun with the Leonard and Duran shit. But if you watch most fights, there's a real rhythm to it. Like a lot of them are like you go, then I go, then you go, then I go, and then a lot of them have rhythms where it's like there are punches, there are uh sequences where like you know that one fighter is going to be safe or something like that. You know, like one fighter is not going to be punching. And a lot of fighters are able to figure out when to punch in those, during those times, you know? And Duran was one of those fighters where like he punched when you're not expecting it. Punch, you throw punches from angles you're not expecting. And that's the kind of thing that I think would probably take this fight with Benny
0: Leonard, yeah. Absolutely. And um, I, I yeah, it's that's a good one, man. It's, it's another one that like, it's been talked about i'm sure Arcel was brought up you know asked who do you think would win a fight and all that i don't think he ever really answered that but like you said he did mention leonard probably was his personal favorite and that goes back to when he first got into the sport leonard was everybody's favorite he was like the golden boy and i'm sure when arcel was asked to train leonard for leonard's comeback that was like the biggest honor in the world for him so yeah,
1: yeah um, for sure
0: the next one a little bit off kilter, actually. I would think, but it would be an interesting fight nonetheless. At going down to featherweight, um, Nassim Hamed against Sandy Sadler.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I could definitely envision Sandy Sadler, you know, getting him in the full Nelson right into. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so, just I mean, full on suplex after that too. Yeah, because
1: Barrera did it. So I can definitely envision Sandy Sadler, dude. He wasn't. He was a bit of a dirty fighter but, himself. Uh,
0: this is the Nassim Hamed years before Barrera just, you know, <laughs> dressed him in and humiliated him. So <laughs> we'll say the Hamed around the Steve Robinson fights so around 1995.
1: Man, uh, I mean, that's two really good punchers. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah, that's, you know what, I'm going to have to look because off the top of my head, I want to say Sandy Sadler was stopped like once.
0: But yeah, a second pro fight or second something like that. Yep.
1: Yeah. God, okay. Thankfully I'm correct on that. It wasn't stopped like fifteen times or something. No, but, yeah. was
0: in a third pro fight, yeah. And I
1: mean it's not like nasim hamed was ever like well, number one, he didn't fight the depth of talent that Sandy, Sandy Sadler fought. So oh, yeah. maybe if he had, he would have been stopped. But um but it's not like he got stopped either. So I mean, it's fair to say that. But we also saw Hamed down a lot. Like we saw him down a lot, we saw him hurt a lot. Yeah. Um I don't know, dude. I think Sandy Sadler, if he catches him just right, or if he catches just about anybody just right, might be taking a
0: nap. I say Sadler stops in between four and five rounds, but Haman might hurt him and even like flash knock down him himself. Because, like, sure, Sadler was never, you know, Sadler had one of the greatest chins ever, too. Like, think about all the amount of fights that he had over the years, the amount of fight, the great fighters that he fought over the years, and somehow. He um, never was able to, like, you know, he was only stopped in, like, his second, like, very, very early in his pro career. And it's like, you think about it now, and you're just like, wow, man. But, like, Hamed had that type of power that was, phew. no one had really ever seen anything like that beforehand. And no one probably, I don't think the division's really seen it since then. And, you know, as polarizing as Hamed is, and especially today on Boxing Twitter, Hamed kind of carries the stigma of just being an overrated, you know, guy from the UK that ducked a bunch of people. And anytime he fought somebody good, he would get undressed. But no, that's not the case, man. All right. Hamed at his peak was, you know, did things no one else had seen in that division at that time. Sure was totally wrong. His style was like, you know, predicated on just his reflexes and being weird and awkward. But at least he had the power to back it up that those ang- and the thing is, even when he looked like he was off balance, he still had enough power to knock the absolute living shit out of you, and that's what he was doing to guys, man. guys that no one had seen at that point people at one twenty six just being stretched the way they were, with their faces contorted, like they were just hitting the face with an aluminum bat. you know what I mean, and Ahmed I mean, was doing this left and right to anybody, to everybody it was just, it was it was really, really brutal stuff. So he would go in there, Sadler would definitely come in there. he wouldn't be amused with Ahmed's doing, but as he tries to go in and crouch in, Ahmed might catch him with some shit early on, and I'm sure Sadler would be backed up, and you would be like, oh, okay, let well, you know, I like, let me back up and like try to readjust here really quick and you know take my time, but eventually he'd get in there, like you said, I think, because he was a lot bigger too, and once he starts getting the oh man, <laughs> it starts yeah, more, he was dude. massive you know yeah dude someone described him as a bunch of loosely like loosely hung fishing poles just kind of strung together
1: <laughs> and it's,
0: it's probably a very good description you know what i mean
1: yeah dude he definitely looked like a stick figure yeah. for sure because he was he was just a gangly looking but that we've talked about the punchers that look like that though dude dangerous super dangerous And I mean, it would be
0: fascinating. It would be a fascinating fight for it,
1: definitely would. And it would probably be explosive. It's just that, yeah, dude, I get those visions of Hamed in the you know, his head bouncing (laughs) around and shit. You you can't be getting hit like that against a puncher like Sadler, like you know, a Bob Foster, you know, somebody like you can't do that, dude.
0: And you you gotta think, and also, too, it might be interesting when the era uh, of the eras of when the fight would take place because if the fight took place in Sadler's era. Then you can easily favor him because he'd be able to get away with all the shit that he was able to do back then. But if you put that, if you put Sadler's style in the 90s when Hamed was at his peak, it would be completely different because the referees were heavily locking down more so on that dirtiness that Sadler was incorporated back then. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's ways of guys being crafty about it, like Holyfield and Bernard Hawkins, but Sadler took that to another level. Like that was a whole part of his style of just being an unruly brute and just elbowing you and kneeing you and doing whatever else but, you know lacing you and all kinds of other nonsense so yeah you know you got to look at <laughs> it in that regard too
1: it, it would have at least been fun you know the lead up to the fight and hamed
0: oh because December
1: 4th yeah. i'm knocking <laughs> you spark out
0: yeah sadler was the type of guy too that you could tell he was a surly guy that didn't talk a lot so he just would have been sitting there and just like Taking all this in and nodding his head, just like building up this animosity, so he can yeah, sounds laugh good, buddy. Yeah,
1: yeah, sounds good, buddy. And then just night, night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude. I I think that that's probably what happens. Is he might even catch something early on, but I just I think that Ahmed takes a nap in that fight, dude. Yeah, no scared. shame either. No shame. Um, let's see. Featherweight. I had a I had one that I thought would be a lot of fun. Definitely offensive minded, and that's Tony Canzaneri versus Eric Morales hell yeah I mean you know Kansanary's definitely got the offense as far as you know uh, and and again another fighter who I think holds up really really well from that era and whose style would do just fine now against a fighter in Morales who probably holds up well in any era too but uh, a pissy fighter somebody who you know gets hit wants to hit back a tough guy, a guy whose style is difficult to compete against. He has a a long jab, a good jab, a good body puncher, etc. So I mean, I think this is a really difficult matchup for both guys.
0: Oh my God, man. Yeah, definitely. Um, said Morales, dude, he even back then with that chip on his shoulder that it had. Remember when he first came on the scene, because he was still a baby, he was only like 18, 19 when he was first featured in Ring magazine as a new face. And then he was eventually featured. first time I remember seeing him was on the uh, De La Hoya Chavez undercard when he fought Hector of Sanchez. But, yeah, he, you know, the the whole bony look in him and the no muscle and anything like that. But, the yeah, he was just, he had a, a very, just a nasty way about him. Always did. Anytime you hit him, he was always wanting to get in there and get a double back. The way he turned southpaw on purpose against Pacquiao in the last round. And still fought until the end. Like, you didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? That's the, way, that's the reason why everybody loves to, um, Morales today still. And he's looked upon as fondly as he is. Um, there isn't, there's very few guys that he didn't fight in those eras. Like, Hamed and um, Marquez are probably the most notable exceptions. And, um, yeah, he just made for memorable wars. But him and Canzanary, man, again, those are two beautiful styles that you can think matching. Because Kanzaneri, is quick-fisted as he was... And his box boxer was—he was a guy that was up in your face too. You know what I mean? Like he was gonna run away from you. He got up in there. If you look at the footage of him, he was right up—you know—very close, throwing those haymakers and other stuff like just very, very, very fast. A beautiful boxer. Um, Shit, (laughs) I don't know, man. It's—I think I'm gonna go with Cansanary. Actually, I think just overall and his overall activity would just let him trump Morales at the end.
1: And he—I mean—we're also talking about kind of like different different sizes too slightly because obviously in kanzanary's what's
0: that what do you think was uh go ahead
1: well kanzanary i think would have been at a height disadvantage but it's like we're also talking about um kanzanary weighing with uh same day weigh-in you know if he's but he also did move up too so it's kind of like you know, he it uh featherweight might not have been his best weight class. That was probably junior lightweight and junior lightweight lightweight because he held both titles at the same time. But uh, even so, he was still a really good featherweight and he was weighing in at featherweight same day. Whereas you know, at the, many many years later, obviously Morales is weighing in the day before, probably gaining weight. So, I mean, there's probably some size disparity there, but even so, you know putting all of that type of crap aside and just going like, you know, how they look as fighters or how they fought or whatever, dude, Tony canzaneri also a very overwhelming style and a very precise puncher, the kind of puncher who was like, you know, um, I, I don't have a ton of in-ring experience, like, but I, the stuff that I do remember is mm-hmm. like, I remember being in with fighters who like, even if they didn't punch the kind of shit where like, it's like when you're not expecting to get punched, but then not only do you get punched, but you get punched like right in the fucking nose. And then it's like, they see that you get punched in the nose and they're like, okay, I'm going to keep punching you like that type of shit where it's like, they're like zeroing in that shit used to be so frustrating. I hated that. And it would be just like, I, I could, anyway, that was partially my problem because I was slow, but Kanzaneri was exactly that kind of fighter where he's, he was a really precise puncher. You know, he'd like put three, four, five shots in on you in the same spot type of shit and a very uh, fast handed fighter and good footwork. And so this is a really tough uh, out for Eric Morales, who like, you know, you think of a fighter like Barrera, obviously a very skilled boxer and a very skilled boxer puncher, but Barrera could get, uh, you know, goaded into a brawl like pretty much any day of the week you know it's yeah. like you start hitting him and he's like fuck it let's go which is a great thing about him but it's that lack of discipline also that cost him in a number of fights and it was only when he was able to discipline himself against like hamed or whatever that's when it was like he turned in those great performances against somebody like Canzani. you know uh is not going to do that type of shit to morales where he's like you know brawling with him and fucking with him type of stuff he'd i think he'd probably be more disciplined in boxing so based yeah. on that i'd probably go with Cansonary.
0: and also too i'm not i don't think that featherweight was morales's best weight like he was still maturing body wise like skill wise he was you know incredible but like I yeah think he was still totally,
1: having trouble to, like, yeah. he was having trouble making weight up to like welterweight dude totally so like <laughs> i think i
0: think like his his best way though so in terms of like performances by the time he started moving up in like you know two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three and stuff. And then as from there, that's when you really started seeing the whole overall of his game. But so I will say great. though,
1: that that Southpaw against uh Pacquiao, it's not just that he turned Southpaw and brawled with him. It's that after that's that he knew that everybody would love it when he did it. Yeah. And that he and his trainers,
0: everyone was screaming, please, God, he, don't do that.
1: And then fucking he goes up to Larry Merchant and Larry Merchant is like giddy, like a little kid. He's like, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, did he like it? Eric Morales is like, ask him, did he like it? And he's like, of course he liked it. Of course. That was that was for me the greatest thing about that was that Morales knew that everybody loved it, did it anyway, and was just like, You like that shit? You guys like that shit? That was so you gotta give them badassery points, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, Cansanary might just be on a slightly different level here.
0: I agree, I agree, that's what I would go with. So Bantamweight's
1: a tougher out, dude. You know, the bantamweight is is I feel like one of the lesser known as far as, you know, depth. When you start saying, you know, name the greatest Bantamweight. Some people are like, I,
0: I, 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 you
1: know. So what do you got at Bantamweight?
0: Um, Going to go turn of the century with Terry McGovern against Ruben Olivares. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, think about that one. <laughs> Man.
1: Ruben Olivares. He's rockabye Terry. Ruben. Yeah. He's uh, an absolute L.A. staple for a number of years
0: maybe the greatest bantamweight ever or you know possibly yeah
1: possibly the greatest bantamweight of all time uh you know terry mcgovern uh, a lot of people forget that he was actually bantamweight champion they remember the the featherweight run which like you know i get it but bantamweight champion first
0: out of that bantamweight yeah
1: yeah man that's a
0: Terry it's, McGovern man I'm oh, going. I'm sorry
1: I I don't know that's that's a a weird I guess I'd never really considered that's a weird matchup
0: <laughs> It is a weird matchup but it's like one of those that you know even with the time period just of all the contemporary accounts of what McGovern McGovern was and what all of his contemporaries all of his contemporaries said what the fans said what the newspaper accounts said dude was an animal mm-hmm. like he was a cross between like Duran and Mike Tyson and stanley mm-hmm. ketchup almost like just a vicious beast you know and his run from 1899 to 1900 is something that still stands to still stands up today as one of the most impressive runs in boxing history because what he does is in 1899 he fights excuse me the bandaway champion peddler palmer peddler palmer was a bandway champion from the uk um I don't think he had suffered a loss at that point. I thought a who's who of what was, you know, around George Dixon, and others. And it's a very, very slick fighter. Good guy, a good all around fighter. Um, same mentality and McGovern kind of like born into it and just, you know, a really tough guy at the time who skill wise was looked upon as one of the best and McGovern bludgeoned him, thinking you can think in the same way, like Mike Tyson, Michael Spinks, just came in, blasted him really quick and left the guy just splattered on the canvas you know what i mean like a murder victim and for that time period that was something rare most of those fights always usually went like no decisions or went rounds no one was getting iced and like and that
1: that bias against the little guys that ain't nothing new you know even back then they were just like ah these little fucking bantam way you know the fuck are they you know but then you know here comes along somebody like terry mcgovern who's just laying motherfuckers flat and they're like oh Totally. Bantamweights could do that.
0: Oh. And the, and before that fight, that was a huge fight. McGovern, you know, representing the U.S. Palmer um, being a champion of England, traveling to the U.S. for this fight. And by all accounts, there was a lot of, you know, former champions ringside like Jeffries and Corbett and other people all around there. And all, you know, half of them were for Palmer and the other half were there for uh, for McGovern and everything. But to see that McGovern just left him there completely splattered in like under two minutes had everybody shocked. Everyone was just kind of like, oh, you know. No one had ever done that to Palmer. I don't think that really happened to him after that either. Moving on, he moves up to Featherweight to fight George Dixon. George Dixon up until that point, even though, you know, white America would say it was Sullivan, was probably known as the greatest fighter pound for pound in history up until that point. Dixon was a bad motherfucker, man. Just a great fighter.
1: Yeah, yeah there the- were some, there were some, like, you know, people who were like, uh, like a uh, boxing types who yeah. who were willing to be like, oh yeah, George Dixon's definitely the greatest fighter or whatever. But there weren't a ton of them.
0: Not a ton, no. Because a lot of people still too weren't even I'm sure weren't even aware of him like that. You know, what I mean, he was popular, but heavyweight's really you know ruled the day. And Dixon went so far back that the first major supercard of boxing, you would want to call it, was Corbett against um, Corbett against Sullivan. And they did like a three, instead of doing it all on the same day, they did a three day event. The first day was, um, George, uh, was Jack McCuffley defending his lightweight championship. The second day was George Dixon defending his bantamweight championship. And then the third day was Corbett and Sullivan. So think about that's how far back he went. George Dixon had been the Bannerweight champion, uh, had been featherweight champion, it seems, since, like, the end, since the beginning of times. All right? Like, bantamweight champion before that, like you just, and no one had legitimately really beaten him until then. There was no decision fights. There was other stuff going on, yada, yada, yada. But no one had taken a true, like, clear, clear W on him like that until, like, Frank Ernie at around that time. So maybe Dixon was, like, you know, by 1900, he was slowing up a little bit. But still, there was no one that was really fucking with him. And when he fights McGovern, that's that was a fight, apparently, I found out today. It was filmed, but, of course, one of the ones that was lost over time was known as one of those that, like, was known as one of the early great fights dixon early on was out box was out boxing mcgovern easily and then just the viciousness of it became so much so that mcgovern ended up taking over dropped dixon a bajillion times and just left him it was like a gory horror film like something that would be like rated tvx today you know what i mean tvma just dixon bloody beat up just completely just you know he was useless. It looked like a it looked like the beef that Rocky was beating up in the in, in the Philadelphia butcher shop. So that's that featherweight. Dixon ain't I mean, excuse me. McGovern ain't done yet. Now he's gonna move up to lightweight to challenge Frank Ernie. He's not gonna win the championship. This was um a non-title fight, but this was considered a major dream fight. Like think about like in modern era today, if you took someone like Naya and Noe in a way and moved them up to fight who's the moving up to fight um Devin Haney you know if you want to like think about that right so that's how that is and what's incredible is that like Ernie was considered at one of the greatest eras of lightweight uh, of lightweight history Ernie was considered the top banana he had beaten Gans elbows McFadden um uh the dude that used I think you're a distant relative of right um i thought, i thought you said you were or something but the former the former the the former lightweight champion from that era news to me no i thought you or you knew him or you're big you're a big or the uh, kid something
1: oh uh kid Levine yeah no no I oh, okay Kidding no, <laughs> what I, what I had mentioned, you might be getting wires crossed, but I mentioned that there's a really good book that's written by a distant relative of him. Okay, and, but, okay that, that I that had interviewed awesome. the distant relative, and that, that I knew the relative. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, yeah, I probably got wires crossed, but I was like, damn, yeah. I got some,
0: I got some royalty. What's up? Shit, that would have been awesome. But anyways, like that, Ernie was considered the man of that era. Um, McGovern moves up and ravages him in two rounds. So, again, that would be like Niowa Inoue moving up to lightweight and then destroying Devin Haney. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is what McGovern was doing. No one was doing that at the turn of the century like that. No one would see anything like that again until the days of Jack Dempsey when he started terrorizing the division. Like, McGovern was unlike anything the world had seen at that point.
1: Yeah, and he was actually tr- a true uh, superstar, too. It wasn't yeah. just, like, uh, he was a celebrity when um, th- this was, like, you know, uh, people talk about vaudeville. Or whatever but you know uh, sometimes that word almost takes on too many different meanings where like they're like what is even vaudeville what does that mean basically it's just that when they say that they mean like generally speaking somebody was traveling and doing shows or something like that and they were like sketch shows either comedy drama whatever like you know a lot of the time that meant they were acting or some performing in some way and Uh, Terry McGovern did some vaudeville shows and acted in a couple of shows while he was fighting. Like it would be like he fought and then like the next week, he just happened to also like, you know, the week after he fought, he would be every night doing a performance at, you know, blah, 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 theater type of shit. So he was not just, you know, he, this, it shot him to fame. It wasn't like he was famous and then he became a fighter. He was famous because he was a fighter. And this he type of run ball. that you're...
0: Everything he did from his families, from his parents, everything, like, he was huge. huge. Yeah,
1: he was massive. And and more or less forgotten about today, but definitely one of the fighters who was, you know, a sensation at the time and shocked people. Like you said, he was small, he was powerful, he was a pasty white little dude. And so, he was, you know, he's knocking fools flat. I would imagine similar to uh, a fighter who one of us may or may not bring up at flyweight, Jimmy Wilde just a little dude who was laying motherfuckers flat and so that's shocking you know but then fast forward to a guy like ruben olivares who uh built up a massive fan base in southern california when he was fighting in the 1960s and 70s and was an immensely popular fighter but also a really really good fighter exciting fighter skilled fighter could punch could box you know he was really well known um i don't know if it really extended much beyond mexico or southern california to be honest i couldn't say but like i mean also another guy who probably gets forgotten about a little bit more than he should these days even though he's still around
0: totally totally and, and considering that he's probably like i said man he might be considered the greatest bantamweight ever in the body of work that he put in during that time man how deep that fucking division was especially in his whole er- in, his, in his local area Like, the guys that he had to contend with, man, is insane. And the knockout streaks that he had, man, like that (laughs) rocker by Rubin, there was a reason for that. He was blasting dudes into another dimension left and right. Like, he ran himself into it, and, God, the record off the top of my head, but it was, you know, 40-something or 50-something and oh before he finally lost for the first time. And when he won the championship against Lionel Rose, who was a very good fighter himself and a good champion, it wasn't like he won. He won that by decision. No, he knocked the shit out of Rose, man. He yeah,
1: During a very good, good era for yeah. that division, too. That's What
0: I'm saying, yeah, yeah. You know, Rose was a good champion. He wasn't a bad guy. Like, um, he wasn't very popular on the West Coast because of, uh, the guys. Yeah, because he got
1: that decision over Chucho Castillo.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he wasn't fun there. He's like, he was an aborigine from Australia. You didn't think they wanted to fuck with him on the West Coast? No, they wanted the championship for themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for him who had a very he had a good style and you know he was a fast boxer and everything like that and for him to win a close decisions that the shit that people thought this should have gone their way yeah so when alivarez was able to finally ring the title for him he was like a treasure to them because of that they're like finally we got the title back to ourselves but he had a you know alivarez had to deal with guys like chucho castillo who became his main rival rafael herrera who um who defeated him for the belt um jesus pimento who's another forget forgotten uh contender who had an incredible knockout streak himself like these were the guys that Oliveras had to contend with back then you know the the contenders from japan other countries and stuff like that like you know it was a deep deep tough era and Oliveras, for all his inconsistencies because it's become well apparent and known over the years the guy was a major part of the he didn't really train hard over the years like probably squandered as much as he accomplished, he probably could have accomplished even more if he really took care of himself in and out of the ring like that. But, you know, can all things considered, man, um just still adored because of his style and what he did. And if you think about that, you think of the way McGovern was and how wild he was, dude, those two would just wanna beat the shit out of each other. I yeah, want
1: to... dude. We're talking <laughs> we're going for bloodbaths today yeah. too, apparently. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, Teddy Brenner, just... the greatest matchmaker of all time, used to say used to say things like, you know, when I think of fights and how they want to be made, would it be a type of fight that the public will want to be seen? Yes, the public will want to see this. This is going to be like a damn monster movie, all right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, this is like Alien versus Predator or some shit.
0: Send your just... kids to bed unless they're eighteen years old. Don't let them watch this because it's gonna be brutal and that's gonna be hurt bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, dude, it's um, you know, it's Terry McGovern's, you know, according to pretty much what everybody writes, his relentlessness and his punching ability and toughness, obviously, too, against uh, somebody who's probably a little bit more stylistic, uh, you know, but do they also talk about, I will say for, for Ruben Olivares, my last little point about him before I make my, I guess, official pick here is that depending on who you ask, I mean, if you ask people who's the greatest Mexican fighter of all time? Most people are going to say either uh, Julio Cesar Chavez or Salvador Sanchez, and yeah. it's like, I get it. I, I'm not going to make a strong argument either way, and I don't really like making lists. But I have heard people say that they prefer Ruben Olivares, and you know, I I get why. You know, if, if you truly do believe that he's the greatest bantamweight of all time, I mean, you're talking about the greatest fighter in a given division. that's that's pretty tough that's a really good argument to make for the great you know the greatest in this chunk of people or whatever so i mean whatever it doesn't really matter and i don't think it's that important whether you believe he's the greatest mexican fighter or whatever but truly a great fighter i probably would go just because i don't really know enough about (laughs) terry mcgovern and like you know visually his style i'd go with olivadas but we do know like i said dude you go back enough into those eras it's really difficult to argue against somebody who is willing and able to go that many rounds and who's potentially seen, you know, bare knuckle combat on a regular basis. Yeah. It's tough to argue against those fighters.
0: KO magazine one time, man, when they compared the two, uh, they compared Terry McGovern, I think at featherweight against Bobby Chacon. And they said that McGovern would have knocked him out, which um, was interesting. But I have no idea. I'm gonna go the same way, man. Oliveras was just a whirlwind at Van Wayne. I don't care who you are if that left hook connects, it's to do some damage. And same also, too, there was better there was more layers to Oliveras' game. He was just he just wasn't a slugger. When he lost the title to Chucho Castillo and in their third fight, um, when when he came back, Oliveras actually boxing that one. He he wasn't trying to slug, he became a boxer and he outboxed Castillo. And that was one of his most impressive performances. So there was like, you know, different layers to Oliveris's game. So, yeah, I would think he would end up stopping him. I think more earlier than later because there's no way that fight's going to go like in the middle rounds. Let alone. No.
1: Yeah. yeah. I would imagine not. No, dude. I don't think that fight's going real far.
0: Governor's going to be like bloodlust, you know, just dreaming and drooling right there. Oliveris is going to Yeah, stop or the Irish boy is oh. going to
1: get cut up one way yeah. or another. My Harris is
0: gonna be smiling with his gold tooth in his mouth right there. Posting to him, they're just gonna go head to head.
1: Yeah, his and goofy one golden tooth grin.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and you'd have to put that in L.A. because why the hell not? You know what I mean? There was some white fighters in L.A. that were really popular. Art Hayfee, for example, comes to mind. And um yeah.
1: Nah, well, dude, if you're talking about superstars, you can get McGovern in there for a uh, you know. A late night showing at the chinese theater or something like that whatever <laughs> so that'll work i got i i had a a bantamweight matchup that i thought was pretty good at least in terms of again i think that the this is one for the purists this is one that i think the the analysts would really like and that's inner joffrey versus orlando canizales
0: i was going to use canizales at one point too so that's a great one
1: it's. I mean, I think that there's, at least for me, there's no question, Joffrey has the edge in terms of, I mean, many people believe he's the greatest bantamweight of all time. Yeah. Um, and I can argue that either. He had an incredible bantamweight run, obviously an incredible fighter overall. Like, I mean, also a fighter, even though he wasn't from that long ago, whose style holds up just fine decades later. Okay. Really, really good fighter and great inside fighter too. And that's what I think makes this really weird and interesting is that you got uh, Orlando Canizales with that footwork and the way that he was always using angles and hopping around and shit. And then you have somebody like Joffrey who was a really, really good inside fighter. It's like, how the fuck would that go? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to call it a draw, bro. I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Like, if you put a gun to my head, I think Joffrey edges it. Ever so slightly, but oh, that's that's a tough one. That's a really tough one.
1: He's he's just the better technician, uh, you know. I think. I mean,
0: started having you know started uh, struggling ever so slightly when he moved up, but at bantamweight, even though his competition wasn't the the toughest, you know, it was more of a weaker era for him, and he just had no and he didn't really like venture out trying to unify. He was kind of content staying with the IBF. still the, yeah. the, the body at work is right yeah there, man. but visually
1: him. too you know that's it's just what stylistically I'm saying,
0: like bro that's why i mean the video if you watch them and you watch like we've talked about it before you watch bam rodriguez and you see the angles that he watched go back and watch khanizales and you'll see why we talk on uh, the comparisons are always on twitter khanizales was beautiful man like right when, when we, we
1: you brought up lomachenko when people are talking about oh lomachenko's doing shit never seen before it's like dude we saw it 25 years ago stop yeah. it
0: and even more even more like fluid with Canizales the way he was doing it. Like Lomachenko, which kind of, you know, the whole jump around and the things and trying to be a little funny with it, like nah, Kanyzales was just Kylie kind of more Duranish, you know what I mean? Like he just going about his business and a pop, pop pop like oh fucking like, so good. Yeah, so dude.
1: It's uh I think I gotta give Joffrey the the edge and a, probably a pretty clear edge. He's a better overall technician, better puncher, just fought the better fighters. But I mean, just visually that would be a, funky funky yeah. funky uh style matchup and funky fight
0: it would be fun oh man i would for for the purists and people that enjoy like just good good clean boxing would like and you know the the skill level at its highest can't get any better than that that would be like a fight that after it happened um uh teachers not talking about trainers but actual boxing teachers would be showing their students that one, like, like the way they should be showing mccallum Uh, james tony and such like that so yeah
1: they'd be doing those lee wiley zaprooter breakdowns of the fights and shit yeah
0: yeah (laughs) i mean if you're able to do that so on man but like the general the people that have been influenced to try to do that on their own yeah not so much keep that keep that keep your opinions to yourself (laughs) watch this jab yeah i like wiley i think i respect him and his opinion and like the stuff he's been doing it for years and clearly he knows his shit and he's a historian as well, but like others,
1: yeah. But then, but then, other people feel like they they that's can what do I'm the saying, same, and you yeah, start yeah, that yeah.
0: domino effect where a bunch of others who clearly aren't on that level want to start putting in, <laughs> yeah. like, who
1: are like inventing they... shit that they're not actually seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, like, I'm with are you,
0: with you fucking kidding me, man? Like, shut up, bro. Like, relax. Yeah, yeah. But, it's,
1: it's a bit much.
0: Yeah, but all right, the little for, guys. The for little guys, man. Like you know, I love always going way back in time because just thinking of the different matchups and all that and whatever. But that being said, maybe a guy that you would have thought of too, Jimmy Wilde, old friend of the show that we've talked about many times against Mark Tushok Johnson.
1: Ooh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> See, I, I knew there were a couple of fighters in a couple of the divisions where I was like, I came up with backups. just in case because i was like you know just in case he also picks them we won't have to like go over it twice or something like that and jimmy wilde was one because i was like you know he's such a fascinating character uh one of the things that always struck me too about jimmy wilde was that i don't think he ever you know i'm not even going to grab my book but i don't think he ever weighed in at the flyweight limit i'm pretty sure he was like well short of it like his entire career i
0: don't know he never weighed at one time Pretty, like, I don't think he ever came he, I, close I, I, to it. Yeah, I'm not gonna go through each one, but no, man, there was times that he weighed less than 100 pounds. Like yeah, th- yeah, he was a tiny, tiny man. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I don't think he ever even came close to it, and uh, and on top of that, yeah, he was always fighting dudes who were like, you know, well larger than him, and it, that's saying something when he was like literally knocking motherfuckers flat, like. Yes. And, and like, scarily, according to reports, like this little teeny, teeny, tiny little fucking super pale white guy, just fucking blasting fools. And on top of that, just look at the photos. He does, I'm sorry, but he doesn't look normal. He oh. looks like he's he's just got a weird body. He's, I mean, I'm sorry. He looks, but he's, I mean,
0: he looks a man, a man, a man, a man yeah, emaciated. He know, looks a just like a man, little teeny so guy, looking in tiny thing. But if you and with his shirt off. You can see that there is muscle definition there. Like he looks kind of, of built. course. Skinny. Like you see the, <laughs> he's built, but then, you know, it—it it is a very odd body shape. But then, you know, you think about his past and <laughs> you think of the coal mines and how tough that was at the, you know, back in the early 1900s and where he had to come from. <laughs> and that he probably spent his lunch break. Most guys back then working in the coal mines or working in lumber yards or wherever they dirt, dirt did. Spent their lunch break usually with a pack of cigarettes and a camp sandwich or some shit, right? <laughs> Wild, apparently spent most of his lunch breaks, you know, knocking the hell out of guys 100 pounds over, um, larger than him, just, just for the fun of it. That's what they did. So, um, yeah, he, he had that type of experience that, like, you know, a guy's bigger than him. He definitely was probably. yeah the um,
1: boxing booths and.
0: Oh, yeah, just everything. And, I can't remember
1: what it was, but he said he's had something like 1,500 fights or something like that over the course of his life that he that they weren't even sure. Fucking
0: well, nuts. if you think about it too, man, it's probably not out the realm that about 10 to 15 slapstick bums uh, at the lumber, you know, at the, at the coal mines or wherever else he was catching work at would see a guy as goofy looking as he is, as small as he is, and, hey, man, you want to take him, and we'll throw like a couple of shelling, you know, shekels at you for it or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'll take it, sure. Thinking you're gonna knock this easy stiff out. And it's like the carnivals when they would bring out the little guy out. Hey, man, if you can knock him off his handkerchief, we'll give you a hundred bucks. You ain't gonna knock him out. Instead, you're gonna catch yourself with some teeth missing in concussion. Well, <laughs> fortunately, works, you know, you're, you're gonna lose work now for the next week because you've been trying to find your insides after what wild does to you. Really, you know, fascinating is the right way to put it, Pat, because that's what he is. You know, he comes from an era that is we know a lot more than we did, obviously, from the past, and there's still more to be learned about him. And Wild is one of those guys that, like, as much as we know about his career and his style, because there is footage of him out there, and you can see that his style is different than what was considered, you know, the norm back then. He wasn't a milling guy that was kind of, like, going in there and mauling you. Like, he had, he had a lot of skill to him. Like, he was a type of a counter puncher. He could slip and punch as you punch Yeah,
1: he was like a touch, ball. touch, touch, boom fighter.
0: And the type of style that if you look at today, you watch him today, be like, you know what? That would work well well enough that, like... Because a lot of those European guys, you know, it's almost... His style could be, like, derived, obviously, as gen- decades and generations before. But you look at someone like Kazaki, you look at someone, a couple other dudes, like, you know, other fighters, you can see... Semblances of how Wild fought and how they fought, and like little bit, little bits and pieces. I'm not saying they went back and watched with Jimmy Wild, but it's like, yeah, I'm being influenced by that. But you can see, kind of see, like, you know, his style and see theirs, and you see, you know what? There's there's differences, but like both Welsh, yeah, maybe there's something yeah. to it, too. Totally, but you know, you get where I'm going with that, right? Like, yeah, for sure. What I'm trying to say is that like um, Wild's style, wild style, Wild's style was different compared to most of the contemporaries of his era he stood out
1: oh yeah there's there's absolutely no question and like you can look to on his record even like the those losses that he's that he had again were to fighters who were generally much bigger than him but also he seemed to have a style that was confusing to a lot of his contemporaries uh well and also i would imagine just looking at him like you said dude i mean you know going in there and you're just like what is this and the next thing you know you're fucking waking up like Whoa. You know, he has no
0: facial hair. He looks like he's 12 years old. He looked younger than that fucking kid that fought in Mexico that Roy just <laughs> did.
1: All
0: right. Literally, he did.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, he you did. Know. Yeah. It, even as like an old guy, he still looks like a young kid. And it, you know, it wasn't until he was like pretty much all but done against Pancho Villa that he winds up getting, you know, banged out like that. And even then, he is well past it. He's like wearing all of his clothes when he weighs in, all sorts of shit. You know, he's just. It's an anomaly.
0: He was, he was basically brought out of retirement just to give to give Via Literally. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wasn't he wasn't really active. His last fight before that, I think, was against the great band champion, um, Pete Herman, yeah. who knocked him out. So yeah, at that point, I mean he was he was just being brought in just to kind of pass the belt off. Via was already the American champion. He had knocked out Johnny Buff. He was, you know, the rampage and Murata that was looked upon at the coronation. And yeah. Don't get me wrong, I mean Wild did, you know, um put up a good challenge. And if he was younger, there's a good chance he probably would have beat Veer and held him back, but by that time he was all used up and he even said so after the fight. Yeah. And um what's crazy again is that Ray Arcel was apparently there. Old ass Ray Arcel who you used to see in Larry Holmes's corner in 1982 said that he was ringside for Pancho Veer and Jimmy Wild, and he said that something happened in that fight where I think Wild was knocked silly. After the bell rang or something like that, it was like really bad. Like Via clocked him. And Wild was, who was already getting beat up at that point, was essentially done. Like he was done, done at that from that. And he said that he noticed Wild's cornerman did absolutely nothing in terms of trying to cause a ruckus or doing anything. They were just kind of like whatever. And Arcel was pissed off, he said. And he vowed to himself, he's saying whenever he worked a corner, he would never allow anything like that to ever happen, like to his fighters or anything like that, you know?
1: That's crazy.
0: I thought that was, like, an interesting tidbit, yeah.
1: Well, that's crazy that he was that old to go back <laughs> oh. that far and remember that. But, I mean, you know, uh, Jimmy Wilde, yeah, dude, that's a, that's somebody who's, I mean, it might not make for, like, a great Hollywood story, but just in terms of just interesting person, that's a crazy life. And then you, you, uh, you know, you put him in with somebody like Mark Johnson, another, again, another, like, style clash, and the one that I have is a style clash, too. It's just, you know, a guy who is uh, a really good technician, a, an incredible counterpuncher, uh, a pound for a dude who never got his due on a pound for pound level. And probably, you know, yeah, he's missing some some key and like signature wins on his ledger that probably prevented him from getting there. And he didn't get the love that he should have gotten, you know, good old DC fighter, um, but just obviously really skilled. Probably underrated in terms of punching, too. Oh, so, I, I mean, dude, this heard. is a man, yeah. it could <laughs> be a whoever lands first type of thing, but it's just that, like, I'm so like Jimmy Wilde and his fucking wild punching power, bro. <laughs> like, it's just you cannot overlook that.
0: You can't do it. And as brilliant as Johnson was at Flyaway, and I mean, think about it, there wasn't really anyone that could stick with him there um, after he became champion. Before he became champion, he did struggle a few times. There's that one fight where he had, well, um, Salazar, I think it is, right? The, I don't remember his first name.
1: Was it Willie or?
0: Uh, uh, was or it no, uh, that's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking uh, um, of
1: wires crossed,
0: he <laughs> <it> was a <laughs> Panamanian fighter. <laughs> Panamanian fighter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they called that fight the flyweight Hagler-Herms because Johnson was almost knocked out in it. Like he got hurt a few times. And there was a wild back-and-forth fight that Johnson eventually, I think, stopped Salazar on round three or so in. But I don't remember his first name. I, it's off the top of my head, I Don't. but I think his last name is Salazar. Anyways, that's, that's one example. Another one, he struggled in his fight with um ever-forgotten <clears throat> fighter from the 90s, um, Alberto Jimenez, who was a former Bantamweight champion from that time. Uh, WBO version. So Jimenez completely forgotten today, but a rugged, rugged tough guy um holds wins over a lot of fighters from that era and gave everybody hell and um yeah johnson i think scored like a really close split decision over him. so yeah johnson could you know as after watching him knock out francisco tejador and then just beat the bejesus out of every other contender that he fought at that time trust me there were guys you know the, the flyweight division that he was in was strong but it wasn't like a golden era of flyweights you know what i mean so yeah, if you put him in with a guy like Wild, who looks sickly and looked like someone that should, probably should have had an IV in him, as opposed to being in the ring, nah, that's trust me, it's a, it's a good fight, it's a close fight, and Wild's skills um, at that point, like he, there wasn't anything he hadn't seen, even someone like Johnson, as brilliant as he was. So
1: yeah, and I, again, I think stylistically, you just it's really tif- it's tough for me not to give the advantage to someone who. It's like if, if a fighter is going to wait, whether yeah. they're a counterpuncher or whatever at all, it's tough not to give the advantage over somebody who's not going to wait and who's going to fill that void with punches. Yeah. And that's the kind of fighter that I would imagine Jimmy Wilde would be against a, uh, against a Mark Johnson. So, I mean, it, but again, it's one of those fights where like whoever lands first, if they land big, could be going to sleep. But I'd probably give the advantage to Wilde.
0: If they had three fights, I think they all split them.
1: Yeah, it could be like one, one, one.
0: Yeah, totally, it would just—it would be tough, man. But I think it would just be fascinating too. Like, just yeah, it would be a fascinating one. So that's my last entry.
1: So I'll I'll close it out here with something that might be a little bit easier in terms of it. Like, we're not going to have to explain too much about one guy because he's very recent. He's technically still fighting, but yeah. without any doubt, a, a flyweight great, and that's Roman Chocola Tito Gonzalez. Yes. I mean, I don't really think I need to say a whole lot more. We understand why he's great. Absolutely incredible fighter. Keeps his hands moving. You know, uh, really great footwork. Uses angles, et cetera. Knows what the fuck he's doing in there.
0: Dude, just, but, oh my God, what a pleasure to watch. I but. Love Chocolatito.
1: But, and obviously we've seen that at a slightly bigger weight and also past his best, his poison was Sri Sorongasai, who who's like, you know, that's a tough fighter to replicate, dude. You know, just a strong, tough-as-nails dude who could punch like a motherfucker. That's a really tough fighter to replicate. However, I do think that Roman Gonzalez could have a problem with somebody like a Miguel Canto, somebody who has really yeah. no punching power but is slippery as shit. And like I've said before, I like to give extra credit to those fighters who can get it done with, like, no punching power. And Miguel Canto had did really, really well in a very difficult flyweight division with, like, no punching power.
0: Fuck okay, Yeah, man. Amen to that. Um, I think only out of all the defenses he had, I think only one of them, he stopped one of his opponents. Everything else went their distance.
1: He, yeah, he had, like, no power, dude.
0: Think of the guys again, like you mentioned, man. I'm just going to mention two of them, but, like, these are the guys you gotta deal with as contemporary so, Shoji Oguma, uh mm-hmm. who became champion, um, as well as um, the guy that is a longtime rival, um fuck. Batulio Gonzalez. So who like,
1: himself was an all-time great.
0: Yes, and is on the Hall of Fame ballot and probably should be in the Hall of Fame, but you know, it's that's a whole other issue. But I mean, think about that. That's just those two. And then you have a host. Of other contenders from that era that were just vying for the for the belt and just badasses. You know, I mean, I think he beat Prudencio Cardona for in a title defense. There was a ton of other guys like, and you said, man, there was no power with him, absolutely not. You know, Canto was um was trained. If if you're gonna recognize his trainer's name, he was trained by a guy named Professor Hazel Rivera. If you recognize that name, that was Oscar De La Hoya's trainer for a cup of coffee in the mid '90s. But he um, is
1: one of the very dudes that got blamed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, that was Delahoya's fault for for picking Rivera to train him against Pernell Whitaker. I'm sorry, but that's literally the last guy you want him training you to fight Whitaker.
1: Yeah, but, dude, I mean, you want somebody who's gonna, tra- who who can train you to just go animal and just yeah. not stop punching ever, like, because there's no other way.
0: Yeah, so that's that's on Delahoya for making a bonehead move on that one. But anyways, Canto um, was one of the most brilliant flyweights you would ever see. Like, he's just an incredible fighter. And um, yeah, that's it's a good one it's a really really good one but if you really put them head to head i think chocolate tito skill wise can hold up with kanto you know i agree I mean? dude i think so yeah and all I, that- I know they're yeah, yeah sorry go ahead i said with all that you know together if you put their skills together i think chocolate tito holds up with them and his power pushes them over
1: yeah i agree dude i think that that's going to be kind of like kind of like how we saw against sorong vasai uh you know, not so much in the first fight, because I thought Chocolatito should have won that fight, but in the rematch especially, it was almost like he did everything that he tried in the first fight, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't making a dent. Okay. Sorong Vasai was like, nah, not tonight, dude. And it almost feels like that could be what would happen with Kanto against Gon- Gonzalez. Like, you know, yeah, dude, you could give him everything you got. You can hit him with your best shot ever, and Chocolatito is just going to walk right through it. And if that's the case, and he doesn't feel like there's any danger, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that could be a tough night for Kanto, As much as I really like the guy, and, who's also still around too, by the way. And last I saw, it looked like he was in very good shape. Um, but he's in been any case, Hall
0: of Fame once. I think he went when he got inducted. I don't know if he ever went after that. But he got inducted before I started going.
1: I'm pretty sure he still lives in the Yucatan down in. He's the the first ever Yucatan uh, Mexican champion from the Yucatan Peninsula. And I'm pretty sure he still lives down there. But in any case, uh, yeah, dude, very, very great fighter. Very underrated when people talk about the greatest Mexican fighters, in my opinion. But, but his um, fall
0: was drastic, unfortunately, too, because of his lack of power. After that's he lost what's his, tough. After he lost his title to the um, Korean fighter named uh, Chan Hee Park. Um, and that's, a fa- that's an interesting fight in itself, too. Because Park was an upstart who only had a handful of fights at that point. I think he might have been an Olympian or so. And when they fought, Park whips him for like the first twelve rounds or so, like first ten or twelve rounds, like doesn't lose a round. And for a guy like Canto who'd been around and outboxed everybody and all that, to see him just getting like you know cooked like that is kind of just like holy shit, you know. Canto rallied in the championship rounds, but he still lost a lost a pretty wide decision. And then they fought a rematch, and I think he ended up uh, in a draw in that one. He performed better in it, but yeah, the, the glory days were over and after that aside from a couple of wins including one against a future world champion um he got stopped a number of times later in his career but yeah that's his lack of power you know what i mean so
1: yeah dude it's 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 a really tough and also on top of that stylistically i mean he didn't have power and so he wasn't like super aggressive he wasn't super offensive he was obviously more of a counter puncher and i mean I, I hate to just lean into that fucking stereotype. We're like, oh, well, Mexican people just want the aggression and that's all they want because <laughs> that's not fucking true. Absolutely. And, yeah, absolutely but not. I mean, but nonetheless, it, whether it's in Mexico, China, the US, wherever you know aggressive uh aggressive fighters action fighters are generally going to be more entertaining and so his style was just not nearly very well received and he wasn't a super popular champion for that reason which sucks because like i said he should get more credit but against uh, gonzalez against the chocolatito gonzalez said that lack of power it's gonna hurt dude it's gonna hurt bad
0: well that's a great one man That another one skill wise that's a one that you're gonna to want to show students. You're just gonna go back and watch it because it's gonna be absolutely brilliant on display for both on both fighters. But Gonzalez, man, you know the thing that my favorite performance of his is probably against Brian Valoria. Like, there's so many you can you're so many you can pick from. But the reason why I love that one is because Valoria came in at his peak himself. You remember how much he was training and how good he looked, and he looked and
1: and he looked good during the fight too.
0: Amazing during that fight, and if you will, and and um, Chocolate was struggling with his weight before that fight correct because i remember he was on the skills and he looked drained and he just looked kind of you know worn out and so there was speculation i actually picked valoria to win that fight because of all those factors i thought that you know valoria was going to with the upset special and that's not for me not like a chocolate teacher he's one of my favorite fighters i just thought there was you know a chance for it but man valoria put on a brilliant fight one of those performances that against anyone else in that division clearly would have won totally Every time he started gaining some slight momentum, Chocolatito just took it to another level. And you remember right near the end when Valorian landed that brilliant body shot, that doubled over Chocolatito. Like, he was clearly hurt from it. He just sucks it up. He's just like, sucks in some wind. <laughs> yeah. it and Just kind of bop, 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 just wiles out from it. Yeah, it was,
1: like, it was like taking that breath somehow re- revitalized him. He's like, okay, I'm good.
0: <laughs> what any what us- was
1: in that oxygen?
0: Any of us taking that body shot would have just been like Ooh! yeah. You know, well, like, mommy. Like, one of my uh, favorite no. quotes, one of my favorite quotes where Richard Pryor says, When your air just says fuck it, just take it takes <laughs> off the <laughs> <body. laughs> no,
1: nah, yeah, I'm, I'm good now. on that.
0: But no, that's a good one. But Chocolatito man fits in in mythical matchups for the flyweight division, fits in well with anyone in history. My god, imagine him and Pascual Perez imagine him and um um uh Lada. imagine him in fighting harada um imagine him and mark johnson you know like god jimmy wilde yeah
1: just like a one of those one of those technicians who's totally undersold like uh you know arbachikov
0: yes you know like that would have
1: just been fun you know just from a skill per skill perspective
0: that's Arbatikov exactly. is a beast, man. That dude could bang like a motherfucker. Are you kidding me? He him and Mark Johnson would have been the tits if they had ended up fighting um at the end of the 90s. But no, man, unfortunately cuz they were they 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 had parallels kind of crossing around that point. But unfortunately by the time Johnson became champion, um Arbatikov lost his belt to um Chatchai Sasakul, and subsequently retired immediately after that. So, you know,
1: yeah dude uh, there's that's exactly why we need to be you know cherishing roman gonzalez for as long as he's around you know you know how the memes protect that guy protect that fucking guy for real because i mean that and guy's a, a, him
0: too for reviving like making the resurgence for what he did in terms of popularity in the weight divisions.
1: yeah because
0: you know there were there was guys that were getting on television the last
1: great and- thing that hbo did dude yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: so. It's the last fucking great thing HBO Boxing did was He's trying fine. to recognize the little guys for sure. Yeah. Dude, you know, there wasn't nearly as much homework to do when it comes to this you know this was a lot mostly just fun.
0: fun man remember how we just talked at the beginning of the show it's just fun to talk and speculate this shit exactly what we just did
1: exactly yeah we pretty much just fucking around they ain't, ain't no homework to do ain't nothing difficult about it really but no, nah, hey dude i appreciate it man for sure because it's a lot of fun we're definitely gonna have to revisit this again or do a different format or whatever man it's, it's a lot of fun thank you appreciate right. it um Everybody, thank you so much if you listened in. I mean, if you listened in to that whole thing, number one, you're sick. I don't know what's wrong with you, but thank you. Appreciate it if you watched. Also, thank you. Either way, go ahead and subscribe if you listen on the podcast apps. Give us a reply or a comment, a rating. And also if you watched on YouTube, subscribe. Leave us a reply. You guys have been really good about doing that lately. Appreciate that. I'm going to try to respond to them as much as we can. Uh, as far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on social media, like Facebook and Instagram. But we're also on Twitter. Individually, we're th- on Twitter. You know, ourselves, Eris, mm-hmm. my boy, is on there as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. So say hi. We'll say hi back. Eris, we'll talk soon, bro.
0: Have a good one, everyone. Later, everybody okay round two name something that's not boring a Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire? Huh? Ah. Oh.